everyone and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, follow us, whatever you do, wherever you're listening to this, please support us. It really helps out. Uh, you know, content creators to, you know, leave reviews, ratings, and all that stuff. We're the creators here, and we really appreciate you. So thank you very much. Let's go ahead and move on. Um, so uh, it's been no secret. I mentioned this last time, I believe. I've just been super busy lately. I haven't been able to keep up with some of the viewing things. I was working on a new job, which I'm happy to say that I got. Um, I've had, you know, a lot of, you know, family and friends and different people kind of traveling through meeting and up with us and hanging out and man, there's just been so much going on with work and everything. And so this week we were supposed to do Matt Sosi and I, I mean, Matthew Sosi, we were supposed to do the next installment of Bergman, but it just didn't happen. I literally just didn't have time to watch, you know, essentially five and a half hours of movies and do the notes and, you know, sit down and talk with them. Uh, in in the times that he had available, I should say. So uh, we're gonna do that a little later. Uh, so I, you know, kind of last minute, I was like, "Hey, uh, Charlie Eckenbarger, who's an old, uh, he's a professor, uh, and uh, I forget the exact school. He'll probably tell you here sh- shortly." And anyways, you know, I was like, I texted my buddy Charlie. We went to grad school together, and I was like, "Hey, man, you want to be on the podcast? We can just talk about like the movies that mean stuff, something to you, kind of like what I did with my dad back on Father's Day or around Father's Day, you know." Uh, I basically did that with my buddy Charlie because, uh, you know, we reconnected during the pandemic and we've been playing D&D with each other online with you know some of my coworkers and stuff. And it's just been great kind of reconnecting with them. And it was great talking with him, you know, for this episode. We cover a lot of movies. I mean, we talk about uh, Pulp Fiction and Alien and uh, The Shining, The Vertigo, My Dinner with Andre. I mean, we talk about a whole bunch of awesome stuff. We, you know, we disagree at the end, but that's okay because we're good friends. Um, but hey, I, I'm really excited. We actually had a pretty extended conversation, so I don't want this to go too long. So I'm going to shut up here in just a second. But I just want to thank you guys so much for listening and, you know, stick with us. We're going to kind of be on a schedule that I'll start kind of previewing for you guys coming up here soon. Uh, things are about to slow down for me a bit, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, but hey, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy my conversation uh, with Charlie. We get pretty nerdy too. We get in the weeds a couple of times, you know, especially when we kind of uh, lightly debate at the end. Um, also, I shaved my head today. That's kind of weird. Uh, you never realize how, like, even if you just have a little hair, how much that covers up, you know, like, the sun. So, like, you just don't get tan there. So, I just have this, like, really pale, like, bald head now. Um, and, but I'm going to like a baseball game tomorrow. We, we have like a, a pros, prospect league baseball team here. So I'm going with my dad, who's also bald. And he was like, wear sunscreen. You know, that's a good, that's a good place to tan your head. So I'll be in the sun. Why not? You know what I mean? I don't know. Anyways, uh, hey, here's my buddy, Charlie, Charlie and I, uh, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of movies. I hope you guys enjoy it. Here goes. All right, everybody, I'm here with uh, my old friend, Charlie Eckenbarger, uh, Dr. 
Charlie Eckenbarger, I believe. I go by Charles now, but okay. Okay, Chuck. Um, anyway, so uh, Charlie and I go way back. Uh, I'm going to tell the, a little bit of the story, I guess. Uh, 2013, we started grad school together at Ball State University and the digital storytelling program. That same fall, we began playing D&D with each other, my first D&D campaign ever. Uh, his not first, but still, it was fun. Uh, he was a dick, but it's fine. And then, uh, you know, we we uh, moved on to be great friends. We went to conferences together. We went to a bar every Friday and talked for like six hours or something. I mean, we just had a great time, but film storytelling, actually. Take film out of it, just storytelling. You started off as a gamer, a video game guy. I was the movie guy, but our storytelling stuff really intertwined. We we got along really well. Uh, so we're here to talk about Charlie's journey kind of through film. Not the whole thing, but just a few kind of uh, main points, things that we've talked about in the past and are going to kind of revisit some of them. And some of these movies I showed him, so I take great pride in that. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking about this. Charlie, correct me where I've been wrong. Have I been wrong yet? No, uh, absolutely not. That's all you needed to say. Uh, no, I'm not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but anyways, Charlie, say hello. Hello. I'm Charles. Uh, despite being called Charlie over and over again, I kid, it's fine. My friends are allowed to do that. Um, but yeah, I am happy to be here currently a assistant professor working in a communication program, particularly on media production. So storytelling is still very much something that uh, I still do. And uh, I've had Austin come to my classes and help me with it. So it's cool to, I've helped him out or he's helped me out. Now I'm helping him out, There you go. I guess, or, you know, tit for tat or something. Yeah. I mean, I just got a new job and you helped me out with that. So, I mean, I did. You know, I'm pretty much the reason you got that job. I Well, not this one I took, but the other one that I got the offer for, you were really helpful. I just turned it down. Anyways, the point is this. I'm really cool and we're friends and that's that's the key. We're going to talk about a few movies today uh, in particular and we'll kind of go down the list. The first one I want to start with, though, and we're just going to jump into it, is uh, is no surprise. It's Pulp Fiction from 1940, or 1944. Jesus Christ. Wow. 1994, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Cast is incredible. John Travolta, Uma Thurman, Sam Jackson, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Ving Rhames, Rosanna... Uh, uh, Rosanna Arquette, sorry. That was, like, super weird. You can shut the fuck up. Anyways, Eric Stoltz and Quentin Tarantino's even in it. It was released October 14th, 1994. Budget of $8.5 million. Check this out. Box office, $213 million. That's not what I would have guessed. Um, but what I would like, what would be fun, every time you do the box office, let me guess what or what, what you do the cost of film is. Let me guess the box office. That is really or, fun because... We we'll play Price is Right rules. Yeah, because this shit is... Wild, wild all over sometimes. the place dude <laughs> i would so, not just since you messed it up already it's fine uh what i would have said be, just because in my i didn't see pulp fiction in theaters obviously i was too young um but by the time i like just based on where it is in you know movie history and in in my life in some ways you know i would have said probably double double that <laughs> just because in my mind it's such a big important film yeah <laughs> i just would have assumed that it blew up at the box office but dude. it still did great Still the great dude. That is better than great. No, regard if a movie now made two hundred thirteen million dollars. Good point. That's that's like Marvel <laughs> money, but like it is years ago, decades ago. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is, and but eight and a half million dollars, and they whatever times that 
200 times. And that's why times Tarantino can just make whatever he wants. <laughs> Anything. Yeah. And so uh, the reason I bring Pulp Fiction up, uh, Charlie, your note to me when you sent it to me was it was a foundational film for getting you into more film. And mm-hmm. that is my story as well. Amelie, the French film from 2001, was my first film that got me into movies. But Pulp Fiction was the first one to bring me back to the U.S. because when I saw Amelie, I thought, oh, American movies suck. It's all about, like, Europe and, like, Asia. You know, like, it, it got me out. But Pulp Fiction brought me back in. Uh, this is a fundamental film of mine. Also, um, and this could change if I really reevaluated it. If we ever do a top ten of all time, like a, a, a favorite movies kind of a thing on here at some point, uh, this might change. But as of right now, my default, when people ask me what my favorite film of all time is, I always say my personal favorite film is Pulp Fiction. So this is a huge movie for me. Tell me how this fundamentally... Um, kind of changed your view of film made you want to get into like more stuff sure so just put it out there pulp fiction when i met you you were still saying it was your favorite film of all time so yeah. it's been there for a long time almost two, almost a decade um so what's interesting about pulp fiction is my parents had it right and that movie came out we were a we were probably like maybe 10 at the time when it came out, something like that. Right. So I was never going to watch it when I was that age. And I remember seeing the VHS tape in like our entertainment systems rack with amongst like star Wars and, you know, Indiana Jones, the VHSs were there and then Pulp Fiction. I never knew what the hell it was. So even from a young age, like, I'm not going to say like I was fixated on it, but I knew what Star Wars was because I was allowed to watch it. I knew what Indiana Jones was because I was allowed to watch it. I wasn't allowed to watch Pulp Fiction. So, you know, as I got older, you know, and thinking about movies, you know, as a kid, I was I was never really in the movies, like Austin said. Um, like you said, I guess. Um, I was a video game guy. Still am. You know, still my main form of entertainment is video games. But it's when I finally watched... Pulp Fiction, I don't know, when I was like maybe 16 or so, 17, because it was late because I wasn't into movies like that. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm used to watching, you know, the big blockbusters, the the Spielberg films. You know, obviously I saw Goonies and all the 80s hits too, just because it was part of, you know, what my parents watched, because my parents were rather young. But when I got to Pulp Fiction, it wasn't like those movies. They weren't made, like Pulp Fiction, while it did well, I don't think it was made for like a mass audience that it ended up appealing to. Like that's... And I think you would agree to an extent, I don't want to say like an arts film, but it's a different level of film than things like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Goonies, Blues Brothers, stuff like that, which I was watching when I was younger. And then you watch Pulp Fiction, you're like, what the hell is going on? I had no concept of anything else outside of that until I seen that film. I mean, there isn't, excuse me, there isn't a, there wasn't a star in it except for Harvey Keitel, who was past his prime, according to a lot of people. So John Travolta, also huge star in the late 70s and into the 80s, uh, but not a he was on the downward side of his career at that point. And Pulp Fiction not only revitalized Travolta's uh, job, it made uh, our career rather. It made Uma Thurman and Sam Jackson like household names, basically. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis, of course. <laughs> Ving Rhames, same. Uh, Tim Roth put him on the map. Same with when people went back to see Reservoir Dogs and stuff. Um, but I mean, you know, you had, uh, uh, Bruce Willis, who was of course diehard and all that, but this put him in a whole different film on my list. (laughs) Yeah. This was a whole different, like echelon of film. 
though, right? I'm yep. not saying better or worse, just different. It's way off. And so, yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's good. It, the filming style was different. The storytelling was different, which is really where you and I meet, right? Is on storytelling. Like our mediums may be different that we prefer, but you know, storytelling is where we can kind of come together. And Pulp Fiction was just so different. Like being a 16, 17, well, however old I was, I don't remember. Like those years are a blur to me. But watching that film that young and not like being used to like the traditional, you know, stuff you were seeing from Lucas and, uh, the 80s films, but just don't get me wrong, that I love, this is just so different, right? And it made me think, like, even then, uh, you know, what else is out there? What else have I not seen? Um, granted, it wasn't until maybe a couple years later uh, that it really kind of set in, right? I didn't watch the film, and all of a sudden, my world blew up. It was like, you know, I got a little bit older, a little bit more mature, um, watched it again kind of thing. But then, and, you know, uh, that's kind of how the transformation of it worked, I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, dude, the structure of the film was actually really groundbreaking. You have the whole uh, non-linear storytelling, which was uh, the way that he did it. A lot of people kind of credit him as being the guy who kind of made that what it is, you know, like that type of non-linear storytelling. Not that there's never been non-linear storytelling. I mean, Sunset Boulevard starts with the guy dead in a pool, and then it goes back, right? Like, you know, of course, there is non-linear storytelling, uh, but this was a very different way because there's a scene where you see John Travolta, you know, alive. And then there's another <laughs> scene where he's dead. And then the next scene, he's alive again. Right. So you have all of this kind of weird uh, time stuff. What I love is if you and look I- at reviews of films around that time, uh, like like uh, Christopher Nolan's Memento, which came out six years later uh, or, uh, you know, which something I really don't like, by the way, for what it's worth. <laughs> Dude, that used to be one of my favorite films, but I haven't seen it in so long. I can't even I can't even begin to talk about it because it's one of those Tattooed things where <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared to watch it again, to be honest, because I'm afraid no. I won't like it as much. But the point I might is, actually love it now. But either way, <laughs> the point is, uh, if you look at reviews, for example, of Memento, people will talk about Pulp Fiction still six years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amores Peros, which is uh, the Inuritu film. It's like his first kind of big international success. You know, this is the guy that did Birdman, for example, which you had on the list that we're not going to talk about today, but maybe sometime. Um, But Inuritu, uh, he did uh, Amores Peros, and everyone's just like, this is a Tarantino ripoff. You know, like people, there are all these movies that were coming out that people were just writing off as Pulp Fiction clones. That's some clout, dude. That's something yeah, like it takes when a, a lot to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When a film has that kind of clout, where it has apparently, in the, at least the critic view and in the audience view, cornered a market. <laughs> like this kind of storytelling is Quentin Tarantino. Period. You know what I mean? Uh, it's like it's like hearing a song that was in a movie, and when you hear that song in a different movie, you're like, "This is wrong. This is the you know, this is uh, Miserloo from the beginning of Pulp Fiction. This can't be in another movie." You know what I mean? Right. But go ahead. So I, I didn't know that they were talking about it in reviews. I don't read reviews like, like that, right? Like I don't do that, but it doesn't shock me. And what I think is interesting about it and the fact that people are still talking about it six years later. And I think that, again, this is a testament to, to Tarantino and his writing, you know, what it didn't do was think the audience was stupid, right? He took, you know, he, he treated the audience like adults in some ways and treated them as smart and that they could follow this thing that didn't follow the clear path from beginning to end. And it's interesting to hear that uh, they're calling, you know, other people ripoffs 
for effectively, in my mind, saying that the audience can follow a story even if it's not in a straight line. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I'm not going to make this too much about video games, but when you think about video games, none of that shit is in a straight line. There's side quests, things you do, going elsewhere, blah, blah, blah. And that was happening, you know, video games were that way in the 90s, particularly around that time as well. So it's interesting to see, or hear rather, uh, that people, reviewers, which in a lot of ways doesn't shock me, were, were just like, well, you're ripping them off, rather than being like, oh, all these other people think the audience is smart too and can follow a narrative that's complex and interesting visually and makes you think about what's happening why. Uh, I don't know. I think it does something. Particularly like when Travolta dies, since we mentioned it, like you see him die and then he's back and you're like, oh, shit, we're closing up this end of the story. And the way he bookends everything, just so smart in that movie. All yeah. the bookends that just come one after another. Um, I don't. I don't think I've seen anything like it. I don't think anybody has really. Yeah, that I'm aware of. But yeah, I, it's also funny that people talk about uh, other films ripping him off whenever all he does is rip off yeah. other movies. Admittedly, and, I, and, and <laughs> yeah, and he does it in a way that it honestly does reach a point of originality. I think. I mean, sure. he's basically remixing all of these bits, yeah. um, not unlike any popular hip hop song. They usually have right. all kinds of. Uh, samples from all ty types of different songs and different things. Kendrick Lamar is my favorite hip hop guy. All of his music is all samples of other shit. You know what I mean? Like pretty well, much. Everything I mean, is derivative, right? Everything is derivative. Uh, there is very few, if any, original thoughts left, right? And I know that's a dumb cliche thing to say that, that intellectuals talk about, but it's true. You, you know what you know because you know something else. Particularly, I think, when it comes to storytelling. And, you know... If Tarantino is ripping people off, please keep doing it. Yeah, because it's good, and he's doing it well. I mean, it, it, it's I would a, argue that he's not. He's just taking what he knows and making it his own. Yeah, and that's all we ever do. That's all we ever do, and and he just has that unique uh, writing and that unique style. And the films that he watches are often under the radar for a lot of people and uh -huh. unique. So he just stands out. He's an easy target for people. I wrote an article which was positive for him, but I wrote an article years ago. It's one of my earliest ones called Quentin Tarantino, Cinematic Kleptomaniac. And it was just like basically ripping down, you know, what did he borrow for the Kill Bill films? Where did those sure. come from? Because those are really easy to track down and kind of pinpoint because yeah, they're easy. very clear. So, the references um, are just painted throughout them. Absolutely. So he anyways, doesn't hide it. Yeah. Oh, not at all. Yeah. He talks about it. All the time. I mean, he'll just like be in a in an interview for like a talk show or something yeah. about some film, and he'll be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I just watched like yeah, a bunch just of." Just go on a twenty minute tangent about this other movie that he loves. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay, yeah, like Bud Bedeker, like Western somebody else I know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Anyways, uh, so uh, that's really interesting because I feel like we've probably talked about Pulp Fiction before, but I actually didn't know. I'm, it was, I'm sure. I actually didn't know. I don't it was think we like ever found, watched it together. We didn't. No, 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 no. But I didn't know it was so foundational in your history as it was mine. Yeah, in in the in the place of you know, it showed me that there's more to film than the blockbusters that I was used to. Uh, didn't come again. Like I said, my family didn't really watch movies like that, so um, just wasn't really a thing until I kind of. And it was always again the the mystique to it too, since it was always on the fucking shelf. Yeah, <laughs> I just always wanted to watch it, so that kind of helps too. I think in some ways. Um, but yeah, what what what's can and this will be the last thing I ask you about Pulp Fiction. What sure. what is the let me rephrase that. Can you articulate what about Pulp Fiction broadened those cinematic horizons? Because I also recognize that at that point in your life, 
you weren't thinking about this actively. I get that. But now in retrospect, are there aspect is it just the writing and that style or is the character the characterization of his of his you know main roles or you know what about this guy like connected with you do you know so again this is hindsight right it wasn't this isn't a thing where the moment i watched it like my whole fucking world blew up that's that's not how it was but when i i always came back to pulp fiction particularly like when i got to college and took like film classes and storytelling and creative writing and stuff like that you think about how to tell a story and pulp fiction uh, you know, was the one that always came back to like, this is a story and, you know, plenty of other stories are kind of unconventional and do things weird, but that's the first one I experienced. Sure. So it's kind of the one that sits with you. Right. So it was uh, largely what got me into storytelling, I guess, in some ways more than film and thinking about storytelling more deeply. Right. Uh, but don't get me wrong. I love Tarantino as a director. I thought the acting was great and all that too, but it was largely seeing a movie that didn't complete in a linear fashion from beginning to end um and in some ways where the uh i don't well, it's hard to pick a, you, know, you know one true protagonist but we're like where one of the main characters gets fucked in the end <laughs> right yeah, yeah yeah so it, it's just so it, well i guess quite literally in some ways two characters get fucked that you used to <laughs> but like it's it was just so different man and i never really thought about anything like it and even after that until probably Ball State and starting to talk to you, like Pulp Fiction was probably like the epitome of like movies for me, right? Don't get me wrong, I watched a lot, but I never really thought about them no, I know. in any any meaningful way. Like I seen everything that came out in theaters almost, but I just never really thought about it any deeper than that. And did I like the story and how it was written? Um, but that's that's kind of I think that answers yeah, your question. Yeah, it, it does right? for sure, and and it actually really connects the dots on how we connected so quickly in school because you actually sound like you had a similar granted it's very unique to you but uh in broad strokes the same journey of we saw a film something about it was really unique to us and it happened to be the same movie but um there's something there and and of course you know I'd been I had hit that point you know much earlier sure. um and you know had gotten obsessive about film so I think it was also really interesting to sit and you know, talk with you and have this kind of shared experience. And I may have been uh, a bit further in the experience, but I could also like teach you the things I learned. Yep. And because we had these like connective uh, mm-hmm. points in our past, it, you know, it just makes a lot of sense to me now why we're friends. Barely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I mean, for sure, like, I again, not really being like into that, like I didn't have the vocab- uh, vocabulary to be able to articulate how I, to think or what I was looking at until I took classes in it. And I took like one or two, one at one at community college and one at Syracuse, it, like just you know your film class, right? Learning how to do production and then like one film history or something like that. But that's not enough to learn how to like deeply think unless like you're the the film nerd in the back of the classroom doing the well actuallys, you know. So <laughs> I just that was probably you. It was, but, yeah, yeah. Of course it was, <laughs> but it wasn't until like you know you're surrounded by people who are interested in that in that level of something, whatever that thing may be where you can really start to broaden your strokes. And um, I know you had a friend in your life that was there watching movies with you, like, throughout yep. that time. Uh, I didn't have that until, unfortunately, I met you. So Yeah, yeah. You're who I got. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you could have been dealt a better hand, maybe? Anyways. Yeah, I mean, um, probably. So- I went to California or something. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, Pulp Fiction, hugely influential on both of our lives. Um, and, you know, th- an- another thing that you brought up to me moving forward, because uh, we have several movies to talk about here, is uh, you kind of clumped together Vertigo, The Shining, Alien, and Silence of the Lambs. And your yep. note to me was that they were transformative to getting you to think about horror mm-hmm. as more than just slashers and trauma films. And I want to talk a little bit about these movies before we get into like talking about them. Vertigo, and I'll give you a chance where I have a box office to guess. <laughs> so Vertigo from 1958, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, written by Alec Koppel and Samuel A. Taylor. Cast, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak, all you need to know for now. Uh, re- release date, May 22nd, 1958 in the UK, but it was May 28th, 1958 in the US for that premiere. And the budget was $2.5 million. Charlie, what's really? your guess for the box office? For a Hitchcock film in 1958? So we're playing Price of Right Rules. I'm going to say, please I don't, don't be over. I don't know what that means. Oh, okay, gotcha. Not going over. Uh, $8 million. I went over. $7.3 million. Uh, close. 700000 off. Okay. Uh, I'm surprised by this. Uh, because really? much like the Pulp Fiction thing. Now, now at this yeah. time, this is a very different era. This is a very different... Uh, I mean, this is before we really get a lot of the younger generation. Oh, around the... Okay. So 1958 is interesting. Real quick. Just a nerdy, really quick nerdy film history thing. TV got hugely popular starting in about the early 50s, especially by 55 is in every house. One in four movies in the 40s and whenever the TV got popular were Westerns. 25% of every movie that came out was a Western. Well, you could watch Westerns on TV at that point. People are like, why would I go pay money at the theater when I could just watch them on TV? Because this was a relatively new form of technology. So what's interesting is even in 1958, you know, uh, films... uh, you know, th- we had the production code, which I've talked about many times on uh, this podcast. And uh, around this time, the people running the motion picture production uh, code, the MPAA, basically, um, basically, they started letting certain things slip through to try to get more money, like to try to give people a reason to come see this movie, whether it was controversial or whatever, because they were losing so much money. They were hemorrhaging money because the TV was fucking them over. So the point is, I'm not surprised that there wasn't a ton of money, but with how huge Hitchcock is and was then still, okay? Like, he was still a big name. Not psycho big, but he was still a big name. Let me let me pause you for two seconds right there. Yeah. Was he as big in the U.S. at the? I have no idea. Was he as big in the U.S. at the time as he wasn't, or was he bigger in the U.K. or was it the other way around? Pretty sure 1940, he moved to the U.S. and exclusively made films here until after the Birds. Okay, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, so in 1940, oh, he went back after the Birds. Okay. Yes, yeah, he made movies like Frenzy and Torn, uh, Torn yeah. Curtain and different things. Those were British. I, I think mm. they both were. I haven't watched a lot of them. Marnie was American, and I hated that movie. So, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so. Vertigo was, I mean, he had huge stars. We're talking about Jimmy Stewart here. Um, and, you know, he already had a reputation with Jimmy Stewart. They already had positive films. I'm just surprised there was only $8 million. Granted, again, we're talking about, you know, there's probably room for inflation and or deflation, I guess, going back in time, however you want to look at that. There's a lot of reasons. I'm just surprised. That's all I'm getting at. I'm talking too long about this. I'm moving on. All right, so then it's the other... It's It's so good. 
I haven't seen it in a long time. It's one I've been meaning to rewatch, uh, but it's it's it's, it's it's been a while. Anyways, uh, so Alien uh, is the other film, 1979, directed by Ridley Scott, written by Dan O'Bannon. Cast, Sigourney Weaver. I don't know how to say this guy's name. Tom Skerritt. Skerritt. Tom Skerritt. That's how you say it. Yeah, that's his name, man. <laughs> John Hurt, Harry Dean Stanton, Ian Holm, Yafit Kodo, and Veronica Cartwright. It was released June 22nd, 1979. Budget, 11 mil. Box office, 40. what is it? 40. $106.3 million. I was very far off. <laughs> yes. That is a huge, that's like a 10% or 10 times uh, thing almost. Wow. That's crazy. A lot of money. Wow. It's not even the Sci-fi biggest. Sci-fi horror film in the late <clears throat> 70s? Yep. Okay. Dude, crazy. Right, that's a ton of money back then. So much money back then. A ton of money. All right. And that's not Just, even the biggest. But, uh, well, God. I guess for that era, maybe. But anyway, so... The, the other film that you mentioned was The Shining, 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick, my favorite filmmaker of all time. I actually have Shining shit tattooed to my body. So much I love this movie. Written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, based on the novel by Stephen King, who hated this film, actually. Yeah. Uh, cast Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Crothers, and Philip Stone. Scatman uh, Crothers, baby. Scatman. Uh, release date, June 13th, 1980. Budget, $19 million. Drum roll, please. How much did this film make at the box office, Charlie? I want to go low because I feel I don't I don't know. I have no frame. Of, this is a terrible game. And I'm going to be bad at because I have no frame of reference of how like popular Kubrick was back then. I'm going to say 40 again. I'm going to go 40 million. 47 million. You were very okay, close. I will. I will give you that one. All right. Round of nice. applause. I might even good. put fake round of applause in here. Um, that was good. All right. And then the last one. And the only reason I'm really breaking all these down now is because I want to do this box office thing. It's fun. I mean, it's all a right. great bit. So the, <laughs> the Silence of the Lambs, 1991. This is the fourth and final film that you mentioned in the group, directed by Jonathan Demme, who's great. Written by Ted Talley, uh, based on the novel by Thomas Harris. Uh, cast, Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and Ted Levine. That's enough for now. Release date, Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1991. It puts the lotion on its skin. <laughs> Um, really, Buffalo Bill, the, the greatest Valentine. Yeah, uh, fun, <laughs> yeah, fun times for for all the lovers. Uh, budget nineteen million. How much did this make in nineteen ninety one, Charlie? So I actually know this one. Oh come on, I do know this one because I've looked at I. I did look at the Wikipedia for Silence you of the Lambs. You just so I don't fucking know Googled it. it right now, didn't you, cheater? Not right now. I mean, I have it up. It's one of the films I have up, like in my notes and stuff. Uh, and I know it's like around like two fifty or something like that. It, it was a ton of money. Wow, you were off again. Two hundred seventy-two point seven. I have it up. I still got it wrong. Get fucked. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the biggest. Like how much it costs versus how much it made on this list. Um, I, I'd be surprised if it's not knowing the films that are coming up here. Uh, but anyway, I'm interested in the cultural moment because I don't understand why that one did so well. Like, as a film person or somebody who enjoys film, like I get it; it's a great film. But the cultural moment just seems like why that movie. Well, but anyway, let, that's let a different ask, podcast. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> I want to ask you this then: when you think of Silence of the Lambs, even when you uh-huh. were younger, not as a film, but just when well, you I think didn't of watch it, as, it till I was way older. That's fine. But, okay, but you heard of it, I'm sure. People probably made oh, yeah. references. Uh, you had to. What was the to. What was the pop culture references? What were those references that you heard? Uh, the Hello Clarice, obviously, is the first one that comes to mind. Uh, I remember, so my family was big in the Halloween, so I do recall, like, 
I'm not going to say that year, but in the early nineties, my dad having like the, the guy like strapped, like, like uh, Anthony Hopkins was like into yeah. the, the gurney with the face mask, like a mannequin of it. Cause we did a haunted house every year because uh, there was an abandoned house on our property, but super dangerous it was, in hindsight. What a terrible idea. But um, cause it literally fell down like a few years ago, Oh my but, gosh! <laughs> not on Halloween with people in it, but either way. Um, so like just that visual, the, the visual of Anthony Hopkins in that, um, you know, that's when I think Anthony Hopkins, I don't know anything about his career until that <laughs> fucking movie, <laughs> like everything after. Okay. So yeah, a lot of that, um, you know, it puts lotion on skin constantly. It's still today is a favorite quote of mine. Yeah. Um, you know, Father you know beans. would you, would you fuck me? You know, that like that I'd, whole thing. I'd fuck me. I actually send my <laughs> yeah. friends when I go, what do you think of? My hair or like whatever. Like I, I don't send people that text, but my point is like, like, dude, check out this cool hat that You're I got. Make up fake text that you sent. Yeah. 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 Joke. But, but you know, I might be like, dude, check out this kick-ass hat I just got or something. And then yeah. sometimes when they say something back, I'll be like a gift that just says, I'd fuck me. You know, like yeah. that guy. It's great. It's I just these I mean, like, I get what you're saying. And I do that all the you time. You fuck constantly. yourself. <laughs> Fuck me. I'd fuck me. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, of course. But it's all those things. Even at a young age, I remember, like, again, I had young parents. So I don't want to make my parents sound like what, like bad, but, you know, they'd have people over and be like quoting these films and stuff for people. So like, it's just things that you heard. Yeah. And, but I think that's part of it. And even other films were like, uh, I remember in Cable Guy, Jim Carrey puts like the yep, pizza the cheese on his face, uh, yep, you know, acting like uh, Anthony Hopkins in the movie. And, and also, it's just done so well. I mean, mysteries usually, especially in the 90s, dude, mysteries like this, like these, these thrillers, uh, did super well. Uh, I mean, What dude, else came out around that time? I mean, ba- Basic mind? Instinct came out in like 92, and that is an oh, erotic man. thriller, but it's still that kind of mystery. You don't know, you know, who killed the uh, former rock star, right? Or like right, there, right. There, there are a lot of movies like that. I have to go look. There's so many of them. You Sharon can literally- Stone, I- Still upset about that movie. I just heard an interview with her recently. She still talks about it. Yeah, because she didn't know that that her she parts got were being shown. She got swindled. She didn't know her basics were on the instinct. Or what have you? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever weird analogy and <laughs> idiom you can make, I suppose. Oh my god, that's going to be a through line in our podcast now, um, dude. Did you know that all your basics were? I don't even remember how it was. I already <laughs> fucked it up. It's too good. She didn't know her basics were were on the instinct. On the instinct. That's right. That's really good. No. Anyways, uh, Signs of Lambs. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like when you watch it, the way that that whole story unfolds, you have this creepy motherfucker in this glass cell talking to this, what unfortunately people would look at as, you know, though she was a strong female character, arguably, you know, she's still a woman. And women, yep. unfortunately, are often, especially at this time, treated like they are weaker or more vulnerable. So you have this vulnerable character, uh, you know, basically being hunted by the serial killer, who we yep. aren't that far off from a variety of serial killers that happened through the late 70s all the way into the 90s. And so, um, you know, you have a lot of this weird shit going on. I'm not surprised because prior to this, I mean, I'm surprised it made that much money. Don't get me wrong. I'm with you. But I'm just saying, like, it, it isn't that surprising when you think about uh, everything that this film was doing and everything that we had experienced just in the world and how well this did. I mean, it, it, it's a really impressive feat. And and Jonathan Demi didn't really, to my knowledge, do much else that even could compare to this level of popularity. I mean, Philadelphia is great, and, and I, I, I get that, but I don't think it did this well. 
Um, and he did some really cool shit in the 80s, to be honest, but no one really talks about that that much. So um, if you're interested in, you know, checking out, listeners, if you're interested in checking out a Jonathan Demme movie, go check out Something Wild. That's a fun one. That's Jeff Daniels in it. Go check it out. Anyways, so uh, these four movies, now that I've spent way too much time, you know, talking about these, Vertigo, Alien, The Shining, and Silence of the Lambs, and you talk about these being transformative films and how you think about horror as more than thra- <laughs> slashers and uh, trauma films. Uh, talk a little bit about this. T- tell me like where you were at that point and what about these movies? Because I would never usually think of Vertigo as horror, but that doesn't mean that you didn't have that experience. Like It doesn't have to be horror for it to change how sure. you think of it. So my point is, this was very fascinating to me. Tell me about this. Talk mm-hmm. about this. So... I'll talk more broadly uh, in a sure. second here, but I want to talk, touch on vertical vertigo for a second here. Uh, just, I think when I think of horror, it is largely skewed by uh, a class I took <laughs> in some ways where horror in a lot of ways is, is linked directly to tragedy. And that film is tragic. Sure. Um, incredibly so particularly. And I mean, ostensibly, you know, I mean, if you haven't seen it by now, too bad, you know, two people die right at the end. Um, ostensibly in vertigo, right? Falling off the cliff and then, or falling into the trapdoor and perhaps jumping to his death. Um, and I think for me, you know, it doesn't need to be, you know, your typical horror film. I think if there's something tragic going on, you can make the case for it to be horror. Um, and I think at the time that I watched them to bring it back to more broad, um, they weren't like back to back, right? Like I watched them like around the same time in my life where, you know, prior to that, I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street. I was watching Friday the 13th. I was watching the Scream movies, which are my favorite of the slashers, every single one of them, and I don't care what anybody says. Um, <laughs> particularly the first one I thought was really great, but for it's something else. Um, you know, I watched these films, and that, even not in that order. I can't remember, because I had a buddy of mine, uh, Sean, uh, who I don't talk to nearly as much as I should, who was really into aliens and he ended up renting aliens from our local movie theater. Uh, yeah. Uh, local uh, movie rental shop, uh, movie store, whatever the hell you call it. I can't even remember. It's been so long. Um, just call them all blockbusters. It wasn't, it was called movies on the move. Is what did what I just called. say? I said, call them all blockbusters. Like people so in I Florida. Rented it from <laughs> movies on the move uh, <laughs> or family video. How's that? We'll call it That's family fine. video. That's fine. Um, and so we watched Alien, and I was like, what, what the hell is this? I never really watched sci-fi either in a lot of ways. It was never something on my radar. And I was probably in my early 20s, and I was just like, well, this is pretty cool. What else you got? Uh, and then I think the second one that we watched was Silence of the Lambs. I was like, okay, like I've heard about this, but I've never I never bothered watching. You know, and kind of went through that process of like, you know, keep showing me things. And then we'll have he's, – he's my – like you, but with philosophy. So it always got into these deeper, like philosophical, what's the meaning of the the movie kind of thing. Um, and I didn't really know how to think about them uh, or think to even look in the horror any more deeply than those slashers. And then like, you know, the toxic Avenger and Tromeo and Juliet and all those films, um, you know, being from Pennsylvania, you know, trauma, especially in the area that trauma is like filmed in like the, their headquarters in Philadelphia in that area. There's just something you're always kind of aware of and not being the movie guy. It's like, okay, there's more out there. So in a lot of the same way, it's very similar to uh, Pulp Fiction in that you just watch it and you're like, oh shit, like there's other things out there than, you know, the nonsense that's around. Yeah. 
um, what I wish happened and what I wish I knew this years after moving out of that area is that there's like this whole like underground movie culture that surrounds trauma that I didn't really know about that still exists. Like these independent films that are kind of in the area uh, in Northeast uh, area where they don't really ever leave that a friend of mine, Rob Muggy, I'll say his last name is fine. Yes. Yeah. Like he was super into that. I didn't find out about in that area too, but back to the question at hand, you know, it's again, that same experience of what have I been missing? And it makes me want to go and watch more. Um, I didn't do that with horror in a lot of ways. Uh, I ended up going and watching the bad B stuff. Cause I thought um, there was always this weird thing about bad B horror movies. Um, for me, where it's like, how did this get made? And I always wanted to know how and why and what was going on behind it. So I was always fascinated by them. Um, so I didn't die. I went kind of the other way. I didn't look for the really great horror films. <laughs> I went yeah. the really bad ones. Um, so I'm not as versed on a lot of horror as I can as I could be. But it made me realize that there's more that I can start exploring. Uh, which these first two movies or set of movies that you picked are largely about. Is these are the things that made me realize that there's more and there's. Uh, more for me to think about and look at that'd be interesting god how how good i mean i love vertigo but just talking about alien how good is alien it's game over man it's game over do you do you you (laughs) like it do you like it more than aliens man you know the third one's uh written by joss whedon did you know that that doesn't got got the <laughs> he didn't get the credit for it, I think, if I remember right. But either way, uh, do I like it more than Alien? I don't. I don't think that I do. Uh, I've seen the four of them. And I guess if you want to get crazy and add the Predator ones in there, uh, which is, it's not even the same films anymore. I don't. I, 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 don't think, want I, to. I would argue it stops being the same films after the second one. <laughs> I but don't. I don't want to do that, so that's okay. <laughs> I think if you ask me tomorrow, I'll tell you I'd like Aliens more. But right now, I think Alien is it. Maybe yeah. like it's probably the one I've revisited most recently. You know, especially preparing for this and like thinking about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I mean, they're both fantastic films. Yeah, I, I love. I love both. Uh, I and think- the game Alien Isolation is like the little prequel thing really great too you know i haven't played that yet i remember people bitching about that game because halfway through i guess it kind of has a bit of a, a tonal shift or something and people were just like eh, it, it was got not fixed. the game that i wanted me me but i want to play it still. i know what you're talking about but you should yeah. um and it's really it's you know it's a transmedia artifact um it doesn't it, it follows um her her name is excuse me the main character scorning yeah, character. Ripley, it, it follows her daughter, right? So it's like this separate story. But either way, uh, yeah, it, it's just a fantastic film. You know, the xenomorphs blew my fucking, you know, the, the, the classic the scenes. Yeah, it's uh, the greatest. Just designed by H.R. H. Uh, H. Geiger, I believe. What was the hell's yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's Geiger. I can't remember if he directly right. did it, but either uh, – I'm pretty sure he did, he, though. I but thought he did the it art. Was all the art. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's exactly. what I mean. He's the art director, yeah. 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 Or so, at least designed the xenomorphs. Yeah, dude, it's – it's great, and the thing is this, man. With with the original uh, quadrilogy, as the box set says, um, uh, I think they start. Uh, a terrible name. <laughs> the Alien quadrilogy. Um, I think from Alien, it just gets worse from there. Even though I think Aliens is just right up there, but there, this just ties us into a thing that we're gonna get back into. So I'm gonna kind of uh, like foreshadow that here. Is there's a difference though between what I would consider the filmmaking. And the entertainment value. Sure. And we're going to 100%. talk a little bit about Absolutely. this here. Because I think what Alien does is so much more impressive 
than what Aliens does. I'd agree. Even though Aliens is also impressive, but it's also mm -hmm. quicker. It's flashier. Yep. You get those yep. moments of the goo coming out of the xenomorph's mouth that are so iconic that mm -hmm. existed in the first one, but not shot in that way. Not like that. Right? It's yep. not like that. They knew what they had by that point, and now yeah. let's fuck people up, right? Money, I get money, it. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so, so you know, it basically went from a sci-fi horror film to a blockbuster, you know. Yeah. And for so, sure. uh, I just, I just really connect with the first one. That tension, the mm -hmm. un, the not knowing. I love. It's that. a scary fucking movie. <laughs> it is, and I love whenever John Hurt has the alien pop out, and no one fucking knew that that was going to yep. happen like that. They just yep. did it. And people were genuinely concerned for John hurt. Uh, whenever uh, Tom Skerritt is in the tunnels with his mm -hmm. flamethrower, whatever he has, I forget. And uh, the alien is like, you see this flash of the alien. I mean, this is just that, that classic, like let's pick off each character. You know, it's like that classic trope of, of horror. Right. But I've yep. never, I usually hate that shit. I, so I usually hate it. I think it. it is. If you're going to show somebody a movie and they it, it's alien and they're like yeah i didn't think it was scary what that tells me is that that person has absolutely no fucking empathy in their body whatsoever to connect with characters and really get the fucking trauma that they're going through and how what a crazy situation to be on or be in right being stuck in there with a xenomorph that is probably going to murder you what are you going to do against this thing and you know, you get that in the Friday Thirteenth. You get that in all that, but it's very different. All those movies give, maybe except for you know uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, like you can get away from those guys in some ways. You're stuck on this ship with a <laughs> alien. It's such a different yeah. thing. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. You know the the whole it's not scary thing with any horror movie. I mean, maybe not any, but any good one like Alien, I would argue is. Um, it's really, a, it's a test of not only did it like make you jump, but did it make you empathize with the characters? And was it believable that these people think that they're going to die? Cause that's what's scary about it. And I think the thing is the same way that yeah. I'm knowing and it, like, am I going to live through this? It takes a level of empathy that I think if, if you don't connect with it and you just don't get even on like a humanistic level, whether you get it as a film or not, like, I don't know. I think that's weird. I you're, do think that's weird. You're talking about your students right now, aren't you? <laughs> every every single one of them almost with the exception of like two dude yeah, yeah it, it actually kind of pisses me off when people don't like alien to be honest because it's alien, like the it's thing like do you is have... another one either one the remake is good too uh, uh but do, like do you have it's like do you have a, a fucking attention span because a lot of people are like it's boring and slow i get that it breathes dude it takes its time how do you not <laughs> feel tension in these moments plus dude all the fucking like like antiquated computer shit that's supposed to be future. <laughs> now that's, that's a personal thing, but I fucking love all the technology. The scene where they leave the fucking ship and go in the cave thing is incredible. Yeah. Still to yeah. this day. I think it's better than any fucking like yep. uh, sci-fi shit I can think of. It's great. But we're, so, we're, uh, let me ask you something then go ahead. real quick based on that. So do you think that because so many things have borrowed going back to Tarantino, have borrowed from alien that, you know, People, you know, younger and you know, people not as interested as younger, so whoever you want to pick out. Do you think that they're just so used to seeing this now? It's just like, yeah, fuck it. I like, I, why do you think, like, how do you not have that tension? 
I, or maybe horror just sucks now. And maybe it does. I don't really watch new horror that much. It follows was good. Same tension building kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the what same idea that you said with the, uh, the creature, like the creature in it follows, for example, follows them everywhere. You can't get away. You can't fucking get away. Yeah. And it so, goes from person to person. Yes. So, so yeah, like I, I, I get what you're saying. And, and my thing is this, man, it's back to what we just talked about. It's, it's uh, like, like, I'm going to use the really pretentious Martin Scorsese phrasing of it's cinema versus entertainment. And and both can be okay. Both can be I, fine. They, I love they just watching are both okay. Yeah, yeah, I just I like watching movies that only entertain me that I would consider bad movies. I like yeah. a lot of movies I consider bad movies. It doesn't matter. But the point is like dude, with with when people watch Alien, if it's not what the uh, like big horror movies or even because smaller horror movies now, even independent horror movies like can do crazy shit that at that time would have felt like a big movie. You know what I'm saying? Like it follows wasn't a huge movie, but it feels mm. like just like a legit horror movie. Like, you know, the, the, several others come to mind. Mother was OK. Uh, so when there's two of them, we watched it. The the. They, they take Conjuring? them hostage in the house. Oh, 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 uh. Oh, no, I don't know. They yes, take them do. hostage in the house. Oh, my God. They, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow games. was in the remake. Yeah, Funny Games. Both of them, Paltrow. like, they're, they're not, like, was it Gwyneth Paltrow? No, Who was it? I can't remember her name right now. She's in Mulholland Drive. <laughs> 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 Gwyneth Paltrow is in my head. I like the movie better the way I remember it. But, yeah, like, small movies like that, like, that shit's terrifying. But I think if you show that to most people, they'd be like, what the hell are we watching? But... Now dude, you're looking it up. You yeah, I am. Uh, Naomi Watts. Because... That, yes. Naomi dude, Watts. But the, the problem is, I showed in the Controversy in the American Cinema class I did with Ashley Donnelly. Uh, mm-hmm. Shout out to Ashley. She's going to be on the show at Big some point. Out. But uh, she's a, she was... She's not done being super busy. Yeah, yeah. I, dude, I didn't know what you were about. This, I thought you were about to call her a bitch or something. I'm like, hold on, dude. <laughs> no, I love Whoa, Ashley. Whoa, Ashley's, Ashley's cool as heck. I talked All to right. her not too long ago, actually. Yeah, well, we don't need to know that. The point is this. Uh, <laughs> well, when that thing was happening, that, anyway. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so uh, Ashley and I taught this. We co-developed this class. It was called Controversy in the American Cinema, uh, and it start. It was uh, from 1966 or seven, right when the production code ended, until about 1989. And we just looked at that, and I loved how none of the students thought like any of the movies were controversial, which for their time they were. But it was stuff like we started with like The Graduate. And it's like, no one thinks that's controversial. It's like, dude, that was in 1967. Uh You know what I mean? Uh, So we were like looking at these things. uh, But after hours, just on my own, just because I wanted to, I just did screenings of movies outside of that era. So a lot of newer ones. And Funny Games was one of them. I did Man Bites Dog also. Like there were several movies that I did. But um, Funny Games was one. And... Some of them were like, "This is my new favorite horror movie." Like they loved this movie. Really? Only, only really? like, only like two, dude, or like one. Okay, like, so I mean, so you it said some, but it was really a couple. There, that's what I meant. Yeah, and then, well, there were only like ten people that would show up, you know. So it's like one, one or two of them might like the thing, and then the others are like, "Okay, cool, I'm glad I did this for class," and then just walked out without saying anything. Clearly, yeah. didn't care, you know. And yeah. quite frankly, Funny Games pissed me the fuck off the first time I saw it. Whenever. Uh, they do the rewind thing. I'll just say it vaguely. That pissed me off. Yeah. I felt like I got I ripped off it. until I started to pick up on what the movie was doing years later and rewatched it. Now it is in my top 15. We did we did our top 15 in the first three episodes. We did five films each and we did uh, uh, we started and we had three weeks left in October. 
So we just did five each episode. We did our top 15 last October. Nice. To, to clarify why 15, because it is a random number. Uh, but Alien was in mine, and so was The Shining, which is the next one. And The Shining blows my fucking mind that people don't... It's not even that they don't find it scary. I don't really care about that. But that they... like, Dude, we, we went to Ball State. We were in graduate school just throwing these people under the bus. We were in graduate school with people who didn't watch fucking shit. They liked stupid shit. And they mm-hmm. didn't, like, they're trying to make shit. Like, how the do you make movies was, uh, without... Joseph Campbell. If it wasn't the monomyth, they didn't care. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, dude. And it's like, dude, make fucking move. If To make a movie, you gotta fucking watch something. And if you want to be mm-hmm. one of these greats, you need to watch some of the greats. And the, the thing is, man, like, people that... And I would argue that goes with any creative outlet. Any creative outlet. If you want to do something... Whatever. If you want to make movies, you want to fucking be a radio DJ. You want to make music. You want to be a podcaster. You have to listen and see what other people are doing, right? Because we talked about it earlier. Everything is derivative. You don't know shit until you know something, right? That's why you go to school. And for a lot of these things, you know, there's the formal education of it. And then there's the, I don't know, the osmosis education of it, right? You watch these things, they get internalized in you. And then you put them into your own creative toolbox where you can do things, right? And that's something that, and you saw it because it's something I wanted you to harp on when I had you come talk to my class. It was like, you have to watch things. If you don't watch things, you don't know what you're doing. I can tell you everything. I can tell you how to use all these programs. I can tell you how to use a camera, but you're not going to know how to make a movie unless you fucking watch them. And people just don't get it, man. And even in graduate school, right? This is higher education. You know, thing people want to go to to get better jobs. They're not doing the thing. They're not doing the thing. And then we get... Marvel movies. Anyway. Yeah. Whoa. You don't have to anyway. I'm on your bus, brother. You know this. This I is... enjoy That comes back to the, the entertainment versus cinema thing. I enjoy Marvel movies, but they're not good movies. Yeah. I'd argue that there's one good one. But anyway. Yeah. I'm sure we agree on the one. Uh, surprisingly, I feel like you and I fight more. And I already kind of set this up saying sure. you and I fight a lot. We haven't fought yet. So this is stupid. We'll get there. Well, you picked the movies that we kind of all both agree with. Yeah. Except for the last one. But we'll see about that. Anyway, so The Shining, uh, h- how did this work into that? Like, what about The Shining was transformative for you? Cinematography. It's Never incredible. seen anything like it. It was, it was my first. So it was my second Kubrick, but I didn't know Full Metal Jacket was a Kubrick film until afterwards because mm-hmm. I didn't know who the fuck Kubrick was, right? It was all about yeah. Arlie Ermey and fucking Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah. That's all I fucking knew. I, I was that guy who turned it off when they got to Vietnam for a long time. Wow. Stop. I was young and stupid. I'm willing to admit that when I got older, I enjoyed, you know, now, like I watched the whole thing. And in fact, you could probably skip the most of the beginning part in some ways. Um, I think it's transformative to the second half of the movie in some ways, but I just know it so well, you don't have to watch it. I still do watch it, but that's not the point, but it was <laughs> Kubrick. Like it looks so different than anything else I've ever seen. And it was fucking scary. Jack Nicholson was fucking terrifying in that movie. Like, <laughs> The the twins and the iconic carpet in that place, like everything about it and the way it was shot just blew my mind. Um, and it's a horror film. It's a horror film. Yeah. Are you, perhaps one of the best movies. Are I would put it in like maybe the top, you know, 25 movies of all time. And it's a horror film. How many horror films are in that list compared to Smothers, right? Probably not many. Uh, I don't have as extensive knowledge as you do, but I don't think many horror would be, but it was just so beautifully shot. It was so scary. And um, 
I don't think it'll ever be replicated in any way. And right. to oh, fuck, I wanted to make a joke, and I had this joke written about it. Like once you started talking about, it, I was gonna be like, "Oh no, I was talking about the Stephen King version." But, <laughs> <laughs> but Which a lot I of people like because I got into the conversation. No, 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 it's no that okay. Movie was, that was shit. That was absolute dog shit. <laughs> I wish dog I water. could. I wish I had seen it so I could argue with you, but I'm it's, not sure. It's if I just would. so bad. Here's the thing about The Shining. You know, we both enjoy wrestling. We have a, a history with that as well, <clears throat> and. Anything nerdy, when, we're probably into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wrestling, well, comics, movies, video when, games. <laughs> when you D&D. have when you have a wrestler, they often like those great wrestlers that may not have been the Stone Colds and the Rocks or the Hulk Hogan's. They're always this like smaller guy that was just so good. like no one gives a fuck about Arn Anderson really. They care about Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's the fourth of the four horsemen. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Now, <laughs> yeah. He was incredible. He was incredible, but. Yeah, great like, wrestler, no, but he's not Hulk Hogan. Do you get what I'm saying? So he's like shit on the mic, he wasn't charismatic. Yet. Yeah, but he's he's like great wrestler. Though. Uh, I hear what you're saying. Uh, he was great on the mic too. I'll fight you on that. But anyways, the point uh, is this. The point is this. Compared Our, to everybody else in the Four Horsemen, no way, dude. He was great. Have you heard uh, only? Anyway, let's, are let's, we even, even talking? Anyways, okay. we'll have a we, our pop hat is going to be a wrestling podcast. So here, here's the thing. Here, I would love to actually we NWA about, only, only oh. NWA. I mean, I like the NWA, but come on, man. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so here's the thing. Uh, oh, I want to talk about wrestling so bad. The point is, if you if you're going to become a wrestler, people often like the wrestler's wrestler, as they say. Or if you're going to be a comedian, a lot of people like those comedians, comedians, because they are doing something that is inspiring to you, even if you're just going to be, you know, uh, the the next uh, uh, fucking Bo Burnham prior to the Inside release. You know, if you're just going to be like a musician. Com- comedian, why are you looking at me like this? The fuck's this happening? Is, I, I don't, I don't see where you're going with this. It's or, just or, weird. What, like Bo Burnham. Du- why are we talking about? Bo? I don't know. What's the fuck is the 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 dude that was a uh, Dane Cook? Say, you know, no, oh, no, no one that wants to be a fucking comedian is listening to Dane Cook. They're listening True. to just like Mitch Hedberg and uh, fucking, uh, you know, uh, Carlin. Uh, Car- you know, thank you. That's actually what I was trying to them. think of. Yeah. yeah, I mean, dude, they're like all these classics, man. You're watching yeah, all Dice this Clay. Shit. All of them, you're man. just soaking it the osmosis you were talking about right you're learning yeah, sure. by watching and, and experiencing and talking with people and you know figuring out through experience all of these things now with movies it's the same way and you know as as we look at like horror for example some people like the genre of horror i love genre movies a lot of times they're terrible but they're fucking Most awesome you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like they can still be really, especially the good ones. Yeah, especially the good ones. They they'll can blow be, your fucking mind. They yeah. blow your balls off, as they say. They blow your balls off. Yeah, dude, it's <laughs> like really great. But The Shining is like a filmmaker's film. Do you get what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like Kubrick, every movie Kubrick made, it's like the wow. comedian's comedian of filmmakers. Do you get what I'm saying? Except like, Eyes Wide Shut. That movie was dog shit. But, but here's the thing, and though it is one of my least favorite of his, I agree. But if you ask, still not dog shit. I'm trying to get a rise out of you. (laughs) No, but here's the thing, because it is one of my least favorites of his. But even if you dissect it and you like, like really break it down to its bare bones, what he's doing is still better than fucking like everything. But the problem is people get caught up in like Jack Nicholson is like, and uh, Shelley Duvall are like so boring at the beginning. And it's not good until like all work and no play. It's a crucial part of the film. You have to have that. It's, you have to have the whole thing. That's the whole point. Yeah. That's what he's. Te- that's what he teaches us here. 
And so uh, The Shining is incredible. I've already been outspoken about that being my favorite horror movie. Um, and then Silence of the Lambs, we kind of talked about already. Is there anything else you want to tag into Silence of the Lambs? Silence of the Lambs, not really. That was just like one that I knew was different. Like there's nothing. Oh, that's why I kind of lumped them in together. Like when I saw them in that same, it was all within a year of each other. I kind of sure. like did the dive onto that. Uh, they all just kind of like opened different doors, right? Uh, Vertigo was actually the first Hitchcock. It wasn't Psycho. It wasn't The Birds. It wasn't any of those. Like Vertigo was the Hitchcock that I was introduced with. Huh. Um, I, I did see the the Vince Vaughn Psycho before I watched actual Psycho. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's, that's a whole different thing. But, you know, it's kind of, it's like that set of movies was at the time in my life where I was thinking about horror differently. And I know that's the cop out answer. Like, how did it? It didn't. It just showed me that there's more. Sure. And when you asked me the question, like to send you this this list, it's like these are the movies that came to mind. My whole list was that whatever came to mind first, not necessarily my favorite movies, but they're the ones that I remembered for specific reasons. Like, why do I remember them? So they're important in some way. Yeah. No, I get and that it. Just happens to be all four of them. I couldn't choose. I had them in four different lines, and I was thinking, I was like, well, they're they're all. This is why, right? And I love them all equally in some ways. Yeah. I, I, I want to, uh, for, for the sake of time here, I want to jump to uh, the next group, and then I want to skip to the end after this, okay? We're going we're gonna, to uh, skip a movie we were going to talk about. Unless there's something you like are diehard wanting to talk about, uh, I, we're going to skip it. Fra- so, are we skipping Francis Ha? Francis Ha, yeah. Uh, not uh, that I, 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 I... Let's not skip it. Let me say my one thing about it here, and we absolutely. won't spend time on it. No problem at Francis all. Francis Ha... Was I would call it an art house film. That is what my idea of an art house film is. Right? When you see, like, this is not going to be, nobody's going to see it unless you go to the theater to go look at it. Or if you have an Austin in your life, right? You probably won't see that movie. And that is a movie about, it's under any other pretense without being like told or going into it with no expectations, you know, I would never watch that. I wouldn't enjoy it. I would be like, why the fuck am I sitting here watching it? The reason that movie is on my list, because it's, it's it's dull. Like, it's just, you're just watching this dancer, uh, the miscarriage and all that kind of thing happens. It's pretty fucking boring, right? But what helped get me through it, and I, that's a terrible way to put it. I enjoyed watching the movie. It is a terrible way to put it because it's not boring, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I meant. It is a great movie. It was... The first like real artsy, I guess, in my mind for what artsy was, film that I watched with you in grad school, I think our first year, well, I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and give this a fair shake. But it was everything that kind of surrounded it, right? You explained to me what was going on. You talked to me about the actors. You talked to me about the directors. You talked to me about like everything kind of going around with it. And, you know, you watch it and you're like, okay, I can accept this for what it is and I can enjoy it for what it is. Um, and think about it on the cinematic level that you just talked about, right? That was probably the first movie where I started, you know, took something, it's kind of where I started making that separation between something being good and something being entertaining uh, was with Francis Hall, is in a lot of ways. Interesting. I guess what I'm trying to say with it. And that's, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, okay. But well, I mean, I could have picked any one of the, you know, hundreds of movies that we watched in those couple of years, right? Yeah. So, but that is one that stuck out in my mind. It, again, it popped into my mind first. Sure. So well, it got on the list. You're welcome. Anyways, so uh, so I'm gonna talk about. <laughs> He's shaking his head at me right now. Um, so uh, I'm really excited to talk about these, particularly this first one, 
And I, I, we have, I have, I don't think, I don't, well, I have talked about the first, but uh, I haven't talked about the second here. Uh, we're going to talk about My Dinner with Andre and the HBO TV movie, The Sunset Limited. And uh, Charlie, your notes were, it changed your outlook on what film could be and how the presence of the actors matters. That last part is very interesting to me, and I'm going to, that's going to be my lead into you in a moment. But, um... Unfortunately, I don't have box office things for you to do here because there's no box office information on My Dinner with Andre and The Sunset Limited was an HBO thing, so there is no box office. However, budget for My Dinner with Andre was $475,000. Correct. Yes, I was going to say that, but thank you. Uh, (laughs) 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 My Dinner with Andre, 1981, directed by Louis Malle. Uh, written by Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory, the two stars of the movie, pretty much the only two motherfuckers that talk, minus like a server maybe saying, here's your dinner. Um, release date, October 11, 1981. Budget, $475,000, as was spoiled. This is literally a movie that is an hour and 50 minutes of just talking. That is it. Literally, that is it. I'll come back to that in a moment. The Sunset Limited, from 2011, directed by Tommy Lee Jones, written by Cormac McCarthy. The play was, they used the original script, is my understanding. The cast is just, again, two people. Samuel L. Jackson, Tommy Lee Jones. It was released on HBO February 12th, 2011. Also, I think, something that's really great. I don't think it's as great, in my opinion, but it is very, very awesome. And I think, generally, for most people, it would be more entertaining. So I definitely, I don't mean to, like... Uh, deny that movie any of its credit. Uh, Sunset Limited is really cool. So, My Dinner with Andre is literally two guys. If you've seen uh, The Princess Bride, the guy that says, Inconceivable! That's Wallace Shawn, okay? So he's one of the guys, and every time he laughs in this movie, it cracks me up because he sounds like such a geek. And anyways, Andre Gregory, if you've ever seen um, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, he plays uh, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, in the movie where he's baptizing all the people in the river. I don't know what else. I don't remember other things. He, I mean, I remember movies he's been in, but I, that's like the one specific character I remember. The point is, it is literally Wallace Shawn narrating at the beginning for the first three or four minutes saying, hey, so this Andre old friend of mine used to run this uh, this play, like this theater troupe or whatever, and you know, he just kind of fell off the face of the earth, contacted me at one point, and then we uh, decided to go to dinner, but I really don't want to go. And then... It turns into this just conversation for literally 90 minutes of the movie, at least, or probably more. And that's all it is. There are three shots. There's one shot on Andre Gregory. There's one camera to the side on Wallace Shawn. And then there's a two shot where it's just both of them at the table. And that's it. And it only lasts the duration of the meal. It's just their dinner. Literally my dinner with Andre. It doesn't look that interesting. It's not shot in any kind of an interesting way. It's just... Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory playing themselves, basically, like uh, versions of themselves, of course, just playing by their name. And they wrote this thing, and it very easily could be a play. Like, easily. Um, Just, like, take the cameras away. There you go. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to start with this lead-in to you before we get into uh, your note. Um, I have not... I, I feel like I've given an honest explanation of what this movie is. I don't think I've tried to hype it up. I think I've actually, if anything, made it sound boring. You did. Could this be (laughs) anything other than boring, Charlie? No, it cannot be. Uh, By premise alone, no, it can't be. Um, 
it is, in my opinion, a movie that you have to watch going into it with context and you have to know why you're watching it. If I just like put this on with anybody and didn't tell them anything about it, they'd be like, why the fuck are we watching two yeah. guys eat dinner? Uh, and I would argue that there's even like within the 90 minutes, there's some parts of the conversation because they go through a myriad of topics. I think there's four topics or something total, right? Uh, maybe three, uh, like their old work in over in Europe or something like that, like spiritualism and something else and whatever. Like some of that is just not that great, right? Uh, but I think it offers like it's, it's just different. It's very different. And I think without context, yes, it is. It's just people are going to be confused and they're going to be bored because they're, they're not going to know why they're watching it. Dude, I, I And told I don't think you, even at the end, I don't think even knowing it, I don't think you know why you're watching it because it's literally just two people having a conversation. And I, they were basically podcasting. Yeah, dude, yes. <laughs> in 1981. Dude, it is that exactly. And dude, I, I honestly can't think of like a more fascinating story storyteller than Andre Gregory in this movie because he talks out of the probably 90 to 100 minutes of their conversation the, the large he, majority of it dude he has to talk at least you know 89 to 99 minutes of the you know 90 to 100 minutes of the thing. like I don't think Wallace Shawn has any lengthy moment other than asking him a follow-up question and him continuing yeah. to talk pretty much and, it's like when anybody comes on your podcast yeah yeah exactly you motherfucker, you. <laughs> got him, um, fucking got him. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's, here's the thing. My dinner with Andre, uh, th I think the performances are great. Uh, Absolutely. Because, it, because at first they seem weird, and then they start, they're so consistent with how they're telling the stories and stuff that it, it just, you're like, oh, these are just two kind of weird dudes. Like, they're just kind of weird guys. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put a clip uh, in in this podcast for yep. the the time Tell where me which one it is clearly, but yeah, where where my in my dinner with Andre, where uh, Andre Gregory talks about the uh, you know being on the spiritual uh, thing, and he is buried alive. I guess really, the last big experience of this kind took place that fall. It was out on Montauk on Long Island, and there were. Only about nine of us involved, mostly men, and we borrowed Dick Avedon's property out at Montauk, and the country out there is like Heathcliff country. It's absolutely wild. What we wanted to do was we wanted to take, you know, we wanted to take All Souls' Eve, Halloween, and use it as a point of departure for something. So each one of us prepared some sort of event for the others, somehow in the spirit of All Souls' Eve, but the biggest event was three of the people kept disappearing in the middle of the night each night, and we knew they were preparing something big, but we didn't know what. And midnight on Halloween, under a dark moon above these cliffs, we were all told to gather at the topmost cliff and that we'd be taken somewhere, and we did. And we waited, and it was very, very cold. And then the three of them, Helen, Bill, and Fred, showed up wearing white, you know, something they'd made out of sheets. Looked a little spooky, not funny. And they took us into the basement of this house that had burned down on the property. And in this ruined basement, they had set up a table with benches they'd made. And on this table, they had laid out paper, pencils, wine, and glasses. And we were all asked to sit at the table and to make out our last will and testament, you know, to think about and write down whatever our last words were to the world or to somebody we were very close to. And that's quite a task. I must have been there for about an hour and a half or so, maybe two. And then one at a time, 
They would ask one of us to come with them, and I was one of the last. And they came for me, and they put me a blindfold on me, and they ran me through these fields, two people. And they'd found a kind of potting shed, you know, a kind of shed on the grounds, a little tiny room that had once had tools in it. And they took me down the steps into this basement, and the room was just filled with harsh white light. Then they told me to get undressed and give them all my valuables. Then they put me on a table and they sponged me down. You know, I, ju I just started flashing on, on, on death camps and secret police. I don't know what happened to the other people, but I just started to cry uncontrollably. Uh, then, then they got me to my feet and they took photographs of me naked. And then naked, again blindfolded, I was run through these forests and we came to a kind of tent made of sheets with sheets on the ground and there were all these naked bodies huddling together for warmth against the cold. Must have been left there for about an hour. And then again, one by one, one at a time, we were let out. The blindfold was put on and I felt myself being lowered onto something like a stretcher. And the stretcher was carried a long way, very slowly through these forests. And then... I felt myself being lowered into the ground. They had, in fact, dug six graves eight feet deep. And then I felt these pieces of wood being put on me. I, mean, I cannot tell you, Wally, what I was going through. And then the stretcher was lowered into the grave, and then this wood was put on me, and then my valuables were put on me in my hands, and they'd taken, you know, a kind of sheet or canvas, and they'd stretched about this much above my head, and then they shoveled dirt into the grave so that I really had the feeling of being buried alive. And after being in the grave for about half an hour, I mean, I didn't know how long I'd be in there. I was resurrected, lifted out of the grave, blindfold taken off, and run through these fields, and we came to a great circle of fire with music and a hot wine, and everyone danced until dawn. <laughs> and then, at dawn, to the best of our ability, we filled up the graves and went back to New York. And there's a moment where, you know, he's talking about how, you know, he's put in this eight-foot-deep hole, and he has, like, uh, they place wood on top of him, just so that he can feel the weight and the pressure of being buried alive and how he starts panicking. He just tells this story. All he's doing is talking, man. And it's yep. like, it's like all you want to do is be in the booth next to them eating dinner and just listening to this story. So yeah, what I people I'd, watch these two, these are, these are the, the pinnacle of people watching. Dude, it, it's the best. And the thing is like, I, I told this to you, Charlie, I think before we started, uh, I didn't rewatch this movie. Because uh, I didn't have time because I've been doing the job search. You know the pain. And so uh, I just didn't have time to catch up with a lot. It's the, it's the reason we didn't get to do the uh, Bergman marathon this week because I just didn't have time to watch like four hours of Bergman or five or six hours, however long Bergman. the movie. Yeah, Ingmar Bergman, shut up. Anyways, dude, you want to see some kick-ass art house movies? We'll talk about it after this. Anyways, the point is this. No. My <laughs> Swedish director, I know that. Uh, <laughs> dude, um, my, my dinner with Andre is fucking tops to me like in terms of dialogue but storytelling man mm -hmm. the way that they it is written so specifically that even just as it's about to get boring maybe for someone he gets into the story and it's just the roller coaster you know what i mean yep. like you're constantly up and down but you never are lost and it, and it's because of how good the writing is how good the performances are and quite frankly how smart louis mal was 
to just put the cameras on them. Let them play to their strengths. Louis Mal does not deserve an award for this movie. Okay, <laughs> Like, he as the director <laughs> didn't do that much. He just captured these moments for us to enjoy. And so uh, this, I, I can't stress enough how much I, I love My Dinner with Andre. I hope people go check it out. It's on the Criterion channel right now. I actually just listened to it at work. I just like had my phone. I had the app open and I just listened. Uh, I, I mean, it's required I, watching in all of my storytelling classes. Um, it, it's so unique. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, dude, it's just required. You talked about this well, is, that and Sunset Limited, but either way. You talked about this being uh, like a podcast in 1981. I want, I want to be a part of this. I'll be the Wallace Shawn. Please, Britt, let me talk to Wallace Shawn for 10 minutes. I'll be happy. (laughs) But let him talk to me for 10 minutes either way. Yeah, dude, this is, uh, it's so great. So the Sunset Limit is very similar though. It's the story of Tommy Lee Jones, who essentially tries to kill himself by walking in front of a train. You don't see any of this, by the way. This is all like, you learned this at the beginning. It's, they're, they're just, there is they more just, movement. I will say that. So if, if my dinner with Andre is them sitting in a booth, is which in a New York restaurant, which they are, I believe it's New York. I it can't is. Remember. Yeah. And Sunset Limited is they're in like this weird like apartment together. I can't remember why. And I don't think it's even explained why they just happen to be there together. I can, um, yeah, I know why, but that's fine. Oh, were they? I can't remember, but it doesn't <laughs> no. matter. There, what's interesting about it is like the movement. There is a lot more movement in there Sunset is. Limited. For sure, uh, it's a lot more cinematic in some ways. This is the uh, tw- this is the movie that came out thirty years to the year later. This is yep. the thirty year like updated version of what a and not as good. But, and it's <laughs> it's not, but it is still great. Uh, I, I, I think, think it's wonderful for yeah. what it is. That is, uh, but man, it, Armac, like, he also wrote No Country for Old Men, which I didn't yep, know. Yep, yep, yep. He did no a idea. lot. The Road. I mean, he did so many, yeah. so many things. I had no and, idea. And uh, the thing is, Tommy Lee Jones plays this dude. You hear this at the very beginning through conversation where he's going to jump in front of this train and Sam Jackson's character stops him from doing it, saves his life. And then Sam Jackson takes him back to his apartment, which is the reason why they're in the apartment. And he won't let him leave because he keeps talking him into staying because he's afraid Tommy Lee Jones will just go kill himself. That's the whole fucking movie. And it's by the guy that did No Country for Old Men, the writer, at least. And uh, th- that's that's your fucking story. And they just they go through religion, they go through culture, uh, they go through economic status. I mean, dude, they hit everything. And that might sound boring, but it's really intriguing. And there's a lot of camera work involved in just that little. Well, what's room. the interesting there's, thing about it? Like, isn't it the original script? Like, they didn't change anything. Am I'm pretty I wrong? sure. I mean, literally, there is no writer. It just says Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, and in I'm pretty sure play. it's just the script from the play. I think it is. Uh, it just happens to be in a New York City apartment. Like a studio apartment, like everything's in one room. Like, yeah, it's it's wild. Very it's, it's small. Probably. Visually, very cool. Yeah, it's it's very uh, it's very cool. And I've shown this in my own com classes about uh, whenever we talk about interpersonal communication and stuff. Uh, and you know, I, I I would show this movie early on and say, all right, let's talk about who these characters are. What do you learn from their conversation? What are they communicating? What are you learning from them? Just seeing their apartment, like Sam Jackson. Like, what do you learn of him? And then what do you learn of of Tommy Lee Jones character being in that apartment and clearly not fitting in because he's an intellectual professor and Sam Jackson is like he's he's just like a janitor. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, uh, man, I've shown this in my classes, too. It's really great. And uh, now, you know, it's it's not the greatest film ever made, but it's one of those like just go check it out because it's just a good watch. You should watch it because it's different. It's different and it's powerful. Uh, powerful. You know, in some ways, like if you're not, I don't know. 
I would, if I'm going to recommend one, like it's always going to be my dinner with Andre, but if I'm going to show something to students that is probably more relatable to them, it's going to be Tommy Lee Jones every time. And I think you can get the same thing from it, but I want to go back to my dinner with Andre. Please. Um, because there is, this is two guys sitting in a restaurant booth, like the most exuberant booth. You can see like big, tall red backing and like woodwork around it and shit. There, like the presence of the actors in that movie of them just telling a story, even if it is just Gregory talking most of the time is wild to me. And most of the cuts very, again, very few because there's probably three cameras in total, you know, Wallace Shawn doesn't have to say a lot the no. way it like you watch him active listening to these stories and it, God, I don't even know how to put it in the words, man. It's just such a different experience. And what it does, I think for film is show in a lot of ways. And I think, and I don't know a ton about Andre Gregory, but Wallace Shawn, for instance, like that dude can be a dramatic actor. <laughs> like yeah. He's doing like this really serious thing and he's doing it well. Um, that you wouldn't know if all you knew was the fucking Princess Bride inconceivable bullshit. Don't get me wrong, love it. But it's so far-fetched. And so, or from what he normally does. And I don't know, man. It's just, it's a lot about presence. And I don't know how you articulate presence. Because it's about how they carry themselves. about how they tell the Dude. story. And the way the stories flow from one to another. Like you said, it's a roller coaster. But at the same time, there's not a dull moment. They're just telling stories and it feels... Like this natural progression of a conversation that is just occurring. It's not like this weird cut to 10 minutes later. It's the conversation just moves to this other topic. Non-stop. If you need a clinic in how to you know, write dialogue, watch My Dinner with Andre. Watch Sunset Limited. Because that's all it is. right? It's just two characters talking. And I mean, I think My Dinner with Andre does a little bit better where it feels completely natural. It feels like they just, again, I said it jokingly, but I think in a lot of ways it's true. This is podcasting in 1981. Yeah. They just put a camera on two guys sitting there who wanted to have a conversation and they did. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's just yeah. a fascinating watch. I, I think Wallace Shawn, at his age now, should start a podcast and be the Wallace Shawn of this I'd movie. I'd be surprised if he doesn't have one. <laughs> I'd be shocked. No, you know how I saw this real quick? It's really random. My buddy Riley, who was the me to you. Guy. Yeah, he's yep. he's my guy, right? Mm -hmm. And we were I worked at Dave's Video at the time, this video store. And uh we still had a Dave whole stories. rack of yeah, we had a <laughs> whole rack of VHS still. It was the DVD era. Uh Blu-ray wasn't around yet. Um but we had this whole rack of VHS still, a few racks. And my buddy Riley would just dig through them cuz there's so many international films that never jumped to DVD. They, we only had VHS and then they just never came to US releases for DVDs or Blu-rays. So he would look through to try to find stuff. So he found the VHS of My Dinner with Andre, and he found the VHS of a French film that is long forgotten, basically, called Toto the Hero, which uh, I will talk about uh, during some sort of, like, under-the-radar marathon I'm going to do, uh, because it won all kinds of major awards all around the world, and it just no one fucking knows what Toto the Hero is. But uh, My Dinner with Andre, he found this VHS, and he goes, dude, I you actually should... know what it is. Well, yeah, probably because you know me. Anyways, the point is this. <laughs> he gave me the uh, VHS of My Dinner with Andre. He's like, dude, watch this. Now, I had seen a few Louis Malle films, uh, just a couple, but they were like French New Wave, like back in like the late 50s and 60s movies. So in 81, he makes this movie about fucking talking, based, like they're just talking, 
And I watched the VHS version because I had a VHS DVD combo. Do you remember what those were? And anyways, I, I, I had that in my television, like the big combo, all three, baby, TV, DVD, VHS. Wow, it's so Eat lame, that. dude. Anyways, so I, I put it in, and, and VHS by that point looked like shit. I mean, even DVD, the jump to DVD, it was just like, come on, man. And at that time, that mattered to me. But what, no matter, what was your first DVD? I need to ask. What was your Matrix. first DVD? I remember mine. My, Are you kidding me? No. Was that yours? Mine too. Yes. Nice. I got the Matrix and Deep Blue Sea like for Christmas. They were my first two DVDs. I, I got the uh, same, except for I, I got two. You just reminded me. I got the Matrix and uh, Big Daddy. How about that? <laughs> Big Daddy was the third one in the pack. I swear to fucking God. That's really funny. Because I, um, I, I did get three. I, I mean, I they Big were Daddy, probably... Deep Blue sea, and the Matrix, and there was one more actually. I got four because I got the DVD player and the DVDs for Christmas. Twenty bucks I don't remember says it. our parents went to the same, not the exact same store, but the same like Target or something. The wall. And there, <laughs> there's fucking, there was fucking a, uh, uh, I'm sure of it, like kiosk or something. Oh, yeah. I'm sure of know. it. Anyways, the point is this. <laughs> my bad. I, uh, I had to ask. Though. No, no, no. It's great. Uh, my dinner with Andre. I had this VHS. I watched it, and uh, like at first, I'm like, this movie looks terrible. I hate this. This is boring. And by the time Andre Gregory starts his first real story, because at first it's like casual kind of small talk, but he naturally, mm -hmm. like you said, naturally builds into these stories. And just watching, the, you could just watch Wallace Shawn listen to him, and I'd watch yep. it. I don't care. Because mm -hmm. the way he's intently listening, Andre Gregory's just natural charisma as he speaks, it's just, it's a flawless film. He has presence. It's so great. And Criterion put the Blu-ray out, which is hilarious, because why does this movie need a Blu-ray? Uh, well, I but, need to own it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's even a box set of Wallace Shawn Andre Gregory trilogy where they did these three films across decades, basically. Uh, 1981, they did My Dinner with Andre. They also did uh, Vanya on 42nd Street in the 90s, uh, which is by, I believe, Jonathan Demme, if I can, if, the Science of Lambs guy. And then yeah. uh, they, in 2013, they did one called The Master Builder, and they were much older. Uh, and I haven't seen the other two yet, so I'm looking forward to just. I'm just going to straight up buy it for the my dinner with Andre. I, I, I mean, um, I want my. I'm going to have to get my dinner with Andre for sure. Yeah, and they have an individual one of that, so you can actually just grab that, folks. Uh, it's I'm so just great. Get them all. Yeah, me too. Anyway, so I want I want to <laughs> jump to the last one because I could sit here and get, we could just geek about my I dinner with Andre. I love that movie. I was love so it. hyped whenever you and I were we should talking. Do a watch along. We should do a watch. Oh along. my god, that is actually such a great idea. And we could do a commentary just post track. Post the commentary for this shit. and then put it on YouTube, and then the listeners can watch along with us. This is the greatest thing you've ever said. I'm giving you a compliment. Uh, I don't know about that. I wrote a dissertation. Well, I'm sure that's 400 pages of me saying things that people hopefully will never read. Anyway. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut. Last movie here. Okay. And this we're we're at a good time to start this. Playtime, 1967, directed by the uh, famous French filmmaker, heavily influential Jacques Tati, written by oh. Jacques Tati and Jacques Lagrange. And uh, uh, the original... Starring. So there's, there's, yeah, and it also stars Jacques Tati, but uh, it was also... There's a lot of English dialogue in it, and that was written by Art Butchwald. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, uh, starring Jacques Tati, there's a lot of other people in it, but I don't know who they are. It doesn't actually really matter. It's not the point. It was released it December nothing. 16th, 1967 in France, but June 27th, 1973, six years later in the U.S. Um, the budget, all I know, because I can't find any direct numbers, it was the most expensive French film up to that point. Uh, now, 
I am going to talk a little bit more about this because, full disclosure, I had never seen Playtime until Charlie a few days ago sent me the list, and I go, oh, shit, I have to make time for this. I was able to watch it all in one night, despite how busy I was. I did have to pause it at one point, which kind of pissed me off, but I did. I made it, I watched the whole thing, um, and I'm excited to talk to you about this. Um, this will be fun. So, Charlie's note, before I give you a little synopsis about what this is, because we're going to kind of do a little bit more with this, uh, just because I want to, and I fucking own this thing. So, uh, Charlie's note, it made me hate the academic study of comedy. <laughs> That was Dude. a little bit hyperbole, but it's not inaccurate. Yeah, when I when I first read that, I like died. I thought that was like a funny thing, and then that's when I asked you. I was like, I was like, do you mean like you hate the film, or do you hate the academic study? And your response was both. So sure. uh, yeah. I was surprised because I'm only saying by that too. Man. All I knew about Jacques Tati was he was really influenced by silent comedy, and every mm-hmm. clip I'd ever seen looked hilarious to me when you see these exclusive clips i was like man i'm gonna love this dude's movies but much like some of the other people that i have never seen a movie by jacques Tati was one of those guys that i was intentionally holding off on until i could do a marathon of some sort but when you brought this up I was like fuck it i have to do this at least i might do a long form talk sometime uh more specific to this but we're gonna chat about it here so the synopsis is this basically playtime is about our protagonist monsieur or what the fuck uh, Monsieur uh, Hulo <laughs> is the character. He plays Hulo, much like the Tramp. Charlie Chaplin's the Tramp. Uh, Tati plays uh, Monsieur Hulo uh, in multiple movies. And he finds himself perplexed by the intimidating complexity of a gadget-filled Paris. He attempts to meet with a business contact, but soon becomes lost. His uh, roundabout journey parallels that of a uh, of an American tourist. Uh, and at, I can read, I promise. And as they weave through the uh, inventive urban environment, they intermittently meet, developing an interest in one another. They eventually get together at a chaotic restaurant uh, along with several other quirky characters. Playtime is set in a futuristic Paris dominated by a hyper-consumerist society. The story is structured in six sequences linked by two characters who repeatedly encounter one another uh, through the course of the day, which I already mentioned, one of which is Barbara, a young American tourist visiting Paris with a group of composed prime uh, with a group composed primarily of middle-aged American women, and Monsieur Hulo, a befuddled and clumsy Frenchman lost in the new modernity of Paris. Uh, as I said, this is the most expensive French film up to that time. Uh, it was shot. And part of the reason is it was shot on 70 millimeter. He was really, that was really important to him. And I have to say this, and hopefully, I doubt you'll remember this specifically in retrospect, um, but this movie looks incredible. I'm talking about just like the the restoration of it. Uh, And it's because it's fucking 70 mil. I mean, like they took care of the prints and 70 millimeter is going to look great. So I have to give it credit for that. Uh, They built a fucking entire studio for this film alone. (laughs) like like they're like these two huge things they also built these huge models of skyscrapers that they could literally just move around and they would shoot it in such a way it looks like real buildings uh it was very very the production uh, of it is absolutely mind-blowing yeah no i will say that but yeah 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 yeah. no and and i know where you're going but i'm glad that you can at least appreciate that because that yeah that's a huge part amazing to watch that's a huge part of tati's like arsenal so i'm gonna just start with Mm -hmm. that um but yeah they built the whole studio uh, the sets are awesome. Like you said, I actually really love the music, which is used fairly sparingly. 
Um, sure. But it, it, when it's you very watch quiet. this, yeah, yeah it's quiet. Way. It's a uh, very colorful and I think interesting visually because the camera's kind of always moving and finding these weird things. His blocking and choreography are actually really incredible because uh, they're dude. I could never get bored watching this movie because there's always something fucking going on. Now, whether it's one true. finds it interesting, I agree, I agree with you here too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Whether one finds it interesting or not, it's a different story. But it's like yeah. my brain could never stop. I can't just shut my brain off watching this. Me personally, like there's too much going on. I even texted oh, yeah. you halfway through it. I think, and I was like, "This movie's fucking crazy." Like, you know, it is, yeah. I think you said it was wild. I was like, "Yep, it's wild. fucking crazy." Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I called it bizarre, <laughs> and you said that was a perfect. No, bizarre, yeah. That was yep. a perfect it's word. Very for bizarre it. film because it is bizarre. Uh, because it it's like this kind of pseudo silent film, but not really in terms of like performance. Yeah, You hear things, but yeah, yeah but there's not a lot of talking at all. I bet there's like what? 10 lines of dialogue in the whole goddamn if, thing. If that. And it's I mean, all it's, in the, in the restaurant scene. Yeah. And, and none of it's like notable. It's them talking. No, it's just, just in the background. Figuring shit out. Yeah. So it's, it's I'm a lot of that. Um, but you know, um, Something watching it was like Jacques Tati's use of what uh, a lot of people call the, the pretentious few call it negative comedic space. You know, this idea of, you know, there's no there's not a lot of like blunt comedy here, um, but there's just like a lot of this negative space that is used to. Uh, everything is being created across this canvas, I guess, is mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. Um, it's funny because as I'm watching this movie. It's it's completely clear that it's made by a meticulous and very intentional artist. That's something that I think we can both agree with that Tati. Yeah, absolutely. At least based on this, it is very. Production wise, it was mind blowing in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I'll give the keep going, but I'll give more context. But yeah, mind blowing what they what he what the lengths that were gone to to make this film. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, again, I'd never seen this before, so I have no bias toward this. It's just based on my first viewing sure. a couple of days ago. Yeah. But here's the thing. While we were talking, I also texted you, if you remember. I said, I'm not surprised that I've seen so many comments of people needing to get, in air quotes, get Tati. Because as I'm watching, like, before I watched it, I kept reading these things about, like, yeah, I feel like I finally get Jacques Tati now. And I was like, mm -hmm. how is this hard? Like, every clip I'd ever seen, like I said, it was just like a physical gag or, you know, like some really colorful, cool production thing. I didn't really get it. And then I watch mm -hmm. it. And I'm like, oh, I get it. You have to mm -hmm. get to, like, I get it. You know, I get what he's doing. Yep. And then I immediately text you. And I was like, I don't blame people for not liking this movie. Like, for not mm -hmm. liking Tati. And it's it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's the idea of, you know, cinema, quote unquote, versus entertainment. Not for me, but okay. Okay, well, then this will be the argument. Because my, my, my argument is, I think Playtime's incredible. Do I think okay. it's funny? Not really. I don't think I laughed out. I might have chuckled a couple of times. But I find it, like, unbelievably clever and amusing. The entire thing. And I see so many core comedic values that so many people, I'm not saying have stolen from them or anything, because obviously they could have gotten it from, you know, the myriad other com comedians that were you know, doing these things. Doing that, yeah. But, you know, I, I watching it, I'm just like, I feel like I'm watching a Wes Anderson movie from 1967 uh, or uh, the, the whole a whole cast of other comedians that are very sure. either that I 100 percent know are influenced by him or that feel like they are. Wes Anderson loves this guy. So um, I know. And I actually and I love Wes Anderson, which and it's different. The, the, 
Yeah, it's yeah. different. And so, um, you know, even, there is a scene even in playtime where you get the kind of dollhouse type shot where they're like With the TV screen thing. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. There are all these different apartment buildings that just have like glass windows as their wall, yeah. and you can see, yeah. and it's part of the future because they're advertisements. Because it's crazy consumerism, baby. Dude, yeah, it, yeah, dude, it's it's all. It is a movie that has something to say, which also impresses me because too many don't now. So anytime I get a little nugget of something, I always get excited about sure. it because, of course, this is about consumerism. It's about uh, new generations leaving the old behind. Jacques Tati is the character, you know, has no idea how to function in this new, like, modern society. Uh, there's a lot of criticisms about how that plays out. You know, I, I, I was really into it, man. But here's the thing. I also get why someone wouldn't be entertained by this because it's almost less that I'm entertained and more that there's so much shit going on on the screen. I can't turn away. It's like flashing lights. It's it's like the dog and up, like, squirrel! Like there, but there are like 15 squirrels on the screen for me. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's less that like it was entertaining for me, but it was more just like as someone who loves film and film history, this movie kind of blows my mind now being however many years ago, 1967 was, but you seem to, you have a very differing opinion. I'm going to pass it over to you. I'm handing you the ball now because I've talked too long. Go for it. So I'm going to put things in the context. I'm going to kind of start over from my, because I think it's important to understand my perspective and like how I came to see this film. Because yeah. I, based on what everybody has heard up until this point, I would never come across Tati. Like I didn't just pick up this film. I was like, oh, let me fucking watch Playtime. This sounds great. Uh, it's not a thing. So I, t- I took a class uh, in grad school. Uh, well, during my PhD, my second year, uh, second semester of my PhD, a class called Film, Comedy, and Modernity. Modernity, right? Like, um this is not to think you're <laughs> right <laughs> not thinking like i don't want i'm not trying to say your your listeners are stupid or anything but modernity is talking about like late stage capitalism is another way that we think about it um thinking about like where the world is because of capitalism these days is what modernity talks about and very much what this film is about and this class is about that the class was rooted in thinking about how film responds to capitalism right so new so capitalism uh over usually every you know over a period of time capitalism evolves and it does new things to try and encapsulate new forms of work new forms of consumerism new forms of advertising etc etc so we started the class watching old like luminaire films and stuff like that like we can do this now so we're going to try selling it and doing the nickelodeon thing etc etc uh, it wasn't immediately starting on comedy. Uh, and then we kind of moved through different eras of film, watching uh, different things, uh, whether it was, you know, talkies or, you know, silent films or whatever, uh, that did new things based on what was available, whether it was new technology, whether it was new amounts of money or new advertising, okay? So uh just to give some context we watched again all the luminaire stuff and all the silent like five minute 30 second or 30 seconds up to five minute films uh you know the the great train robbery all that stuff um there was some stuff in between that i can't remember because it was just there was so much every week we watched one movie so 16 movies over the course of the semester it's two we had two periods we watched a movie one period because it's a three-hour class and then we talked about it the other uh some highlights um uh, artists and models jerry lewis loved it absolutely fantastic film largely about uh comics in some ways and thinking about comic books and the way in which 
uh, they caused a frenzy, in which I never cared about Jerry Lewis before that class. Neither here nor there. Uh, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Best in Show was in there. Um, the last movie we watched seemed like a little bit of uh, uh, pandering. We watched some weird Amy Schumer film, and uh, we watched some Jackass and stuff like that. Because, uh, again, <laughs> it, it was kind of talking about the cultural moment and, like, hookup culture and responding to, like, things like Tinder and um, – uh clip culture like what jackass spawned from right either way tati and playtime fell right into that like 1960s like weird era where nobody really knew what was going on with technology knew what was going on with capitalism except that it was happening very fast and when i watched playtime and i've never watched any other tati i know nothing about shaki's tati other than this film and when I got sat down to watch it. You know, we're thinking about responses to modernity, thinking about um, the feasible and the unfeasible, what may happen, what may not, how people are dealing with, you know, living in an age of hyper-consumerism or the fear of hyper-consumerism, the fear of, you know, corporate dominance, et cetera, et cetera, which I think not knowing a ton about this, maybe you can speak to it after, um, which I think the French are a little bit more sensitive to in some ways, right? Uh, I think you see these these visualizations of what they expect the future to be like based on consumerism and all that a little bit differently. So what didn't happen for me is like I'm watching you know these six different sequences, right? They're in the airport, they're in the the, the office building. Uh, I have the the list somewhere. Uh, the the restaurant sticks out because that's like most of the film. Yeah, and that that is and the like, last half, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just these super exaggerated forms of what it may come to be or what how it's perceived. And it, we watched all these other things before it that were a little bit more tame, a little bit more tempered in some ways, that seemed more realistic. So it got thrown into this mix of a class where it's like, okay, we're dealing with these serious issues and we're dealing with movies that take these issues seriously through comedy. And then we get the playtime. And to me, it just seems so absurd. And we talked about absurdist comedy. Don't get me wrong. That was part of like the reading and all that stuff we had to do. Sure. It just did not land with me. I don't get it. And what's funny is one of the things you said was like, you know, I get why people don't get it. And then my buddy, Justin Grandetti, who's a professor at uh, Charlotte, uh, UN uh, University of North Carolina, Charlotte, he said the same thing, like jokingly, because like he, you know, just bantering after class. I told him, I was like, I didn't like it. He was like, you just don't get it, man. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and you said the same thing. As soon as you said it to me, I texted him. I was like, this motherfucker like just said the same thing to me that you did. <laughs> so it just didn't land, right? Like, I take that sort of thing kind of serious because in my research, that's what I do. I talk about capitalism. I talk about, you know, Marxist theory and so forth through games and internet connections. So I'm getting there and watching this film where it takes it in my mind so far into the absurdist that I just can't connect with it. Right. Do I get it? Yes. I get what he's doing. Do I enjoy it? No. Do I think it's good? I think the production behind it is phenomenal and mind blowing. But was it entertaining? Did I enjoy watching it? Absolutely not. I was annoyed with <laughs> yeah. the pretentiousness that it took. Because it's very pretentious. It's an incredibly pretentious film. It thinks who it is. 
And it does that, and you get that air of it. And I just hated watching it. The big part of it, though, I think for me, and I don't know, this is all in hindsight, is it was lined up, I'm pretty sure, like, the week before we watched Artists and Models, which is 1954, 1955, something like that. And Jerry Lewis is very different. It's a very Americanized take of that kind of, like, modernity and dealing with capitalism type thing. And then you get Tati, which is so fucking out there and just not interesting to me, right? I can, I can reconcile why it's good, but I just – it didn't connect. I didn't like it, and I thought his take was stupid. <laughs> I didn't like it. It was just dumb. It's like this is absurd. Like if that's what he's going for, great, but it sucks. <laughs> it's very interesting that this is your perspective because I don't think it's that absurd, nor do I think it's that pretentious. And I don't. Did you watch the movie? I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't because know. Because it's clearly just it's this guy. Pretentious. It's just this guy in this modernistic or futuristic, to some extent, uh, place where literally everything in the old world, quote unquote, is gone. All you get are glimpses of the old world, like the Eiffel Tower and a reflection in a window. Like these things don't exist in this world. But that's um, not how it happens. That's that not how exactly modernity. How it oh no, 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 it is oh, not. Okay, okay. Sorry, I thought you were that's going. That's not how modernity happens. I thought you were talking about in the movie. I'm like, no, that's exactly oh, how it happens. Oh no, no, no. Yeah, in the movie, <laughs> that's exactly it. But that's not. In my mind, that's not a response, right? It wasn't responding to what was happening, right? So what you're saying, like, yes, it's everything's gone, and then is it? You know, he's dealing with it in every scene. But that's not how it actually happens. You're not responding to what's occurring. You're making predictions about it, which is what I think is pretentious, right? He's predicting that everything is going to be gone, and it's not. See, it's I, don't, I, don't, not. I don't take it that way at all. I actually don't take it as he's commenting on where things will go. I think oh, he, he's, absolutely is. He, is, he absolutely is. He is a filmmaker who clearly loves old cinema, right? He clearly has a – if you and I haven't seen his other films from beginning to end to have an opinion or to have context. <laughs> so I'm just letting that be known, but I have read about him seen clips and so on. And I see this as a through line uh, to him as a filmmaker. So I could sure. be off. I'm acknowledging and qualifying the statement as such. Well, However, my interpretation in watching this was never trying to predict that the world would literally be this thing that he is doing, but more of he himself, much like Woody Allen, not to bring up a controversial subject, but I did, you know, Woody Allen is a dude that is still alive in 2021 and looks like and lives like he's in 1965. You know, he's five you know, New York, which is you know what I you know what I mean? Because wow. because he's just he's like never aged. This guy, like he just all I mean, he looks aged, but I mean, like Woody Allen has like always been the same dude. Like his movies are the same. Uh, not not that they you know what I mean by that. Like he still makes the same type of movies. Is what I'm trying to say. Sure. And, and, you know, he he has never kind of aged because he has this very specific style. I could see Woody Allen making a movie like this because he's just like, okay, cool. Let's look at, from the perspective of the films I make, now let's interject this completely sure. modern view so that I can juxtapose my style with this new thing just to show how crazy and ridiculous the current world is. And mm -hmm. and it, it, through rose-colored glasses, retrospectively look mm -hmm. at the world that once was, and that's kind yep. of like the uh, without having had a ton of time to like really like dig into this movie. That was just kind of my initial view. Tell me where you think I'm wrong, because I can tell by your. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong at all. I think 
this comes down to something I've said for a long time and this will tail off into something else. The first way you experience a film is the way that it leaves a mark on you. I experienced it. The reason I told the story about the context in which I saw it is because it's within this class that had this very specific take on the reason why these movies exist. Yeah. Which is as response to modernity, you know, in the most, you know, in the one sentence, in the tweet as to why this film exists. Sure. And in my mind, this response to a modernity, how I seen the film is bad. It is not good. This is a <laughs> poor take on modernity and capitalism and hypercapitalism, whatever you want to call it. Okay. So in that context, the context in which I first experienced the film, I thought it was garbage compared <laughs> to everything else we watched, including Jackass. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it, because in that context. Now, this is the first time I've had an actual conversation outside. The, so we're talking five years since I've watched this film, since I've talked about this film uh, in any meaningful way. You know, after we had that, you know, we watched a movie and we had the class about it. I haven't talked about it since. I will say this. A lot of people it, typically uh, will just say you don't get it and stop talking to you. So I, I get why you haven't had this conversation. Sure. Yet. Well, because I, well, to be fair, I'm I've kidding. never met anybody else who gives a shit about Tati. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, certainly not a ball me. state. <laughs> No, certainly. Or at North Carolina State. Uh, well, maybe the professor. I'm sure he did. He wouldn't have shown the film if he didn't. But uh, actually, I love the guy. Uh, the guy who showed it is a really great dude who uh, you should have on the podcast. That dude knows a thing or two about film. Um, but again, it comes out the way you're talking about it. Sure. If I saw it in that context, the first time I saw it, absolutely would have loved it. But is this and here's the kind of thing I was talking about. We don't have to get into it, but sure. like, this kind of running joke with me and my friends is like who you see your move that movie with the first time matters. It leaves an impression, you know? So if I see a movie with you, I'm going to think about it differently than if I saw Francis Howe with my brother sure. who would not get the film at all. We'd fucking hate it and just dog on it the whole time. Right. Yeah. So I saw playtime in this context where it didn't make sense. I didn't think it was good. So it has this lingering thing. And I think even said in my initial text, like, you know, I'm going to take the hardline approach because, you know, for the sake of conversation. And I kind of am. And I think, I don't think I would watch Playtime again. And I still don't think I would enjoy it uh, because of that lingering connotation to the way in which I first interpreted it. Um, that's not to say I'm not open to thinking about it differently. I think the way you're explaining it right now makes a ton of sense. And I think in that respect, sure. Uh, but that, that moment, you know, that, that, you know, however long the movie is, two hours or something. Dude, uh, it's that over I spent two hours. Watching it. Is it? Yeah, it, it was long. Uh, you know, it was in a very specific context that shaped my opinion of it. Am I open to hearing other ones? Yep. Will I watch it again? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, you know I mean? man, you text me and you were like, I guess I'll have to fire up playtime again. I almost got you to rewatch that shit without even asking. You almost did. And then I went. I think moments later, I was like, let me see if I can just find my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, dude. It's two hours and 35 minutes. Yeah, it was a long one. Long one. Yeah, uh, I have to admit, I, one, did, I did feel the uh, the length a little bit. I was never bored, like I said, but I did start to feel the length. No, in some I was, scenes, visually, so. I was in, man. I was sold on the way it looked. I was like, man, this is fucking cool. But again, it comes down to the way in which you view something first, right? For me. And this goes with anything, whether the game I play, whether the movie I'm watching, whether the music I'm listening to, who I'm with, how I'm watching it, and the context that surrounds it matters. And that, I think, 
knowing what I know about Tati, like doing a little bit of research, like coming into this and like just kind of hearing you talk about it, it seems like something that you need to know more about it rather than this guy made a movie that is responding to this one thing. Because it's probably more than that, but uh, it's tainted. And that's the problem with taking a class in grad school. It's going to point you in a very specific <laughs> direction that you may not be able to pull away from. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's fair. Yeah. that That is. And a if good I point. watch it again, I think if you and I watch Playtime and like we kind of talked about it, maybe it would loosen me up. But I have no, no, after watching that, I still, and even talking about it and like knowing that there's other perspectives, I just don't care. I yeah. don't care. This is, <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is I learned about Tati through the Criterion Collection because they started putting his movies out, restoring them and trying to like keep them relevant, so to speak. And uh, like I said, I never watched one until now. And he's like this kind of like huge uh, kind of voice of the 50s and 60s. And uh, I can't remember what his last film was. Maybe this was it. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, because again, I've intentionally kind of kept away from Tati because I had never seen anything by him. So I was like uh, holding off. But yeah, I, you know, it's funny because though I did ultimately like the movie, it's not so much that it was because it was entertaining, like what we were talking about before. I did find it entertaining, but not so much that I'm like dying to go watch the rest of Tati's work. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right, 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 right. like I'm, not, I'm not there yet. If I did a marathon, that'd be my motivation. But aside from that, sure. I'm happy with playtime. Um, and if anybody wants any more thoughts on that, I posted it on Letterboxd. You can go uh, see that. But uh, but yeah, so so I want to I want to do one more thing before we start to close down here. Your note to me specifically was it made me hate. I know this is hyperbole, but it made me hate the academic study of comedy. Can you just talk a little bit more specifically about that statement to kind of close out our moment here? Sure. So keep in mind, I am an academic. I am literally employed as an assistant professor. Like. I am part of the academy. I will say, and I'm okay saying this on something that's going to go out in the public airwaves, that academics look way too deep into shit. We, I think particularly, uh, not only through that class, but thinking about, you know, classes I took afterwards, thinking about storytelling and, you know, all the contingent things I did. I think some of it gets taken in a way that is not meant to be. And I think my opinion on Tati is a good example of that. However, it's more of a comment, particularly on while it's important to understand the academics behind it, it's important to understand conceptually, contextually, and what is going on to also kind of internalize the fact that it's all subjective, right? What is gold to that professor that showed me playtime in a myriad of other films uh, for various reasons could be garbage for the exact opposite reasons for you. And it comes back to that you have to watch things um, uh, regardless of what it is to form an opinion about it, right? I watched Playtime, uh, which sparked that comment, in the middle, literally, was, I think it was the, the eighth week that we watched that, uh, amongst a whole bunch of other stuff. So I watched a ton of other stuff and I thought other things did it better than that, right? And you can see how far off the rails taking one class on something can turn somebody to be a little pretentious, right? So you want to make sure that you just have a robust understanding of not only what you're watching, why you're watching it, who you're watching it with, the context in which it was made, I think is incredibly important. You, 
and just not take, you know, the thing one critic, an academic critic, somebody who does critical analysis says too seriously, right? There, the whole the whole point is that there is a, a robust conversation and not a dead end stopping point. And what I think, not only the academic study of comedy, but the academic study of almost anything in the humanities, uh, stops is uh, to doing is conversation. I think it stops them in a lot of ways. And I think that we need to have more robust conversations about why things may not be the way we think they are, and bring in different perspectives, right? Um, so again, it was hyperbole. It was more of this, you know, it was a, to get you to ask me that question. But if you are interested in film in a way that goes beyond just, I liked it, I didn't like it, don't take one perspective um, as the end all be all, because it yeah. isn't. Well, it's right. a, there's also a reason why someone writes an academic article and then another person writes a different academic article challenging the ideas of the first article Sure. Uh, <laughs> because there is sure. still room for uh, disagreement. There's always but, room for it. You know, thinking of this getting really extra nerdy to close this out here, though, sure. you're talking a lot about uh, uh, watching something in the context, which, of course, with film history, context is king. And my yep. goal is to think of a film and what was happening in that time. That was always my focus. Um, yeah. And and like you described, uh, academics, you mentioned uh, Rob Brookie or uh, sorry, uh, Rob. No, no, no. You were talking about Muggy. Brookie is who, who I Brookie. want to talk about. Uh, I remember we took uh, his uh, his uh, 601 class. And I remember uh, I wrote an, an article for the end of the class, 20 page, 25 page article, whatever it was. And I, I talked, I argued that the Dogma 95 movement, movement, if you don't know what the Dogma 95 is, it's D-O-G-M-E, Dogma 95, look it up. Uh, Lars von Trier and uh, Thomas Vinterberg started it. You can go check it out. It's wild. I'll talk about it sometime. Maybe I'll do a marathon. Who knows? But anyways, I talked Remember about Remember you how, doing this presentation. Yeah. It was probably awesome. Anyway, so I <laughs> uh, I remember uh, I, I, my argument was Dogma 95 was the precursor to the found footage horror movie. Yep. Charlie, do you think I believed a word of that? I don't actually think that's true. However, I made a fucking good argument, good enough that Brookie said that should be my my master's thesis. <laughs> and they were able was... to make an argument and believing in something are two different things. And having that ability to make an argument for something you don't necessarily believe is probably one of the most important things that anybody can have, because it tells you and it tells a lot of critical uh, thinking for yourself or tells anybody that you can watch movies the other side of something being able you can't argue for something if you don't understand the other side and that's that's kind of my point right um in particular with playtime i get the other side uh and i'm guilty of this i'm not doing it i don't care about it i'm not interested uh but luckily film is not for me again i love watching i love enjoying i love indulging it's not something i feel like i need to indulge deeper and I could just skim over it because <laughs> it's not particularly part of my job and what I get paid to do. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the larger thing is I recognize that I'm doing that. And I think that's what important. Exactly what you just said. You may not believe that dogma, uh, whatever, 45, is that what it was? <laughs> 95. 45, 95. Yeah. yeah. Started found footage, but you made the army for it because you can't. Yeah. And you understand that argument exists, and then you can have your own actual argument or whatever yeah. it may be. I don't think we ever talked about. Um, I mean, Dogma 95 for, basically is found footage movies without the horror. 
Well, I mean, well, it is just found footage movies, not horror movies. Um, but anyways, yeah, it, it is very interesting. Um, and I've always taken the approach in this podcast to kind of take the new criticism approach of I am looking at what the film is, the final product, the finished product is saying, not what the filmmaker's intentions were, though I can take that into consideration. That is not necessarily a person could film some dude taking a shit on a table and that or in could, a bucket in a New York subway or in a bucket in a New York subway. That's funny. That's funny. You sent that shit to me. You should anyways, play the clip. Yeah, Michael Rappaport's hilarious. But anyways, uh, he didn't shit in the bucket, by the way. But anyways, the point is this. Man, imagine if he did. That'd be, f- dude. He, he, his career would be revitalized. <laughs> Being the new, the Jackass <laughs> Forever movie. The point out. is, the point is, you know, uh, some dude could take a shit on a table and their intention behind that could be to talk about, uh, you know, the uh, rise and fall of capitalism, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Some long pretentious thing. Yeah. Uh, but in reality, I'm watching it, and guess what we're getting out of it? A guy with his hairy ass getting pulled out of his pants and taking a shit on a table because you're yep. not giving us anything else in the story to actually contextualize the the message that you have. Why Why there's and a bucket so, shitting happening. <laughs> why there's a bucket shitting happening. So, you know, for me, it was a lot easier. Again, I, I love your context thing. I came from a completely different perspective, expecting Tati to be this incredible visionary. To an extent, I think he is. Not as much as a lot of people. I would have to kind of indulge in a lot of the other movies, get more of a context uh, uh, for his work. But, um, yeah, that that is an interesting perspective. Um, context matters, man. Context, context the joke, is king. The joke was always, you know, what you know, who, what movie did you see first or who did you see it with, right? Uh, Boondock Saints or Fight Club? Which one did you see first? That's one you're going to like better. Which one, who did you see it with? If you saw people you like, you're going to like that movie. And, you know, that's the really basic and, you know, yeah, uh, uh, on the surface way of looking at it. But it goes when you want to think about it deeper as well. Yeah, I, I actually saw Boondock Saints first and still like Fight Club better, but it's fine. It's fine. Um, so well, uh, I see it gets poked in the whole, the whole time. <laughs> but what was going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no, no. But you're who yeah, I saw it with and all that good, stuff. But. No, no, no. I, I'm a. Uh, I I, I I agree with you. All right. Um, but anyways, that's it, dude. We, we've we've I'm so happy the direction that we went with this. I, I can't stress enough. Go watch my dinner with Andre. And then um, yeah, you in, have to. In spite of Charlie, if you want to see playtime, hit me up on uh, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. Or you can find me, Austin Glidden, at uh, uh, at Austin Glidden, rather on Twitter uh, and find me on Letterboxd. See what I think of these things. Charlie, what do you want to leave us off with? We're about to get the hell out of here. I'll probably have you on again if you're nice. Um, What do you want to leave us with? Watch movies. All right, everybody. That was our episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Charlie Eckenbarger, Dr. Charlie Eckenbarger. He's a really good friend. And hey, Charlie, if you listen to this, which you egotistical prick listening to your own episode but the point is if you listen to this i appreciate you brother thank you for being my friend and all you listeners out there thank you so much uh, for putting up with his bullshit to be honest i mean that guy's wrong right anyways uh uh no this was really fun to do and uh we'll have charlie on again i guarantee uh it'll be a good time we're gonna we're gonna have uh plenty of topics charlie and i can do i, I just want to do a podcast with him in general i think it'd be really fun so Uh, By all means, hit us up. Let us know what you want to hear. 
Uh, with that said, I'm going to keep this really, really short. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, I hope you tune in next week. We're going to have a lot of fun. You know, finishing out the summer is going to be great, uh, especially once we get, you know, through to October even. You know, we'll be at our one-year anniversary of the show. I think October 13th marks one year. I mean, this is just exciting stuff. We're really excited to keep going. All that to say, thank you so much for listening. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. Thank you.